0: This is Jocko Podcast number three hundred and ten with Carrie Helton and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Carrie. Good evening. <clears throat> I went back to the living room and sat down on the couch. Newspaper clippings, letters of recognition, and photos with important individuals were scattered across my coffee table. The forty-seven years of my life were summarized in a pile of images and words. My life story stared me in the face. One photograph in particular caught my attention it was one in which I was holding a single tomato in one hand and a bucket full of tomatoes in the other I was wearing an old blue t-shirt and a pair of shoes that were ripped my abuelo Jose and my siblings stood beside me my abuelo posed with his straw hat we were all wearing old dirty clothes The agricultural field seemed infinite in the background the color of the shirt I was wearing in the photo was the exact color of the shirt I was wearing as I gazed at the picture at that moment I had to smile thinking about how things in life came full circle I was now wearing a blue NASA polo shirt and not an old blue t-shirt It dawned on me that there is no secret formula or magic for making dreams come true. The only way to make a dream come true is to have the passion, the work ethic, and the foundation of a good education to help go from one step to the next while pushing aside the obstacles in life. And that right there is an excerpt from a book. The book is called Reaching for the Stars. It was written by a gentleman by the name of Jose Hernandez who has had an incredible voyage that led him from those fields, picking tomatoes as a child out in central California and doing that to help pay the bills for his family. And that journey took him all the way to man's final frontier space aboard the space shuttle as an astronaut and it is an honor to have jose with us here tonight to share his story with us and also share some of the lessons that he learned along the way it's great honor jose thank you for joining us
1: thank you for inviting me It's a pleasure to be here
0: it's a it's a wild story and i kind of jumped to the end there the 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 voyage that you've been on the whole way and the perseverance that you've shown—just um, an incredible story.
1: Yes, I think it just epitomizes the um, the American story, you know, of what's possible here in this great country of ours, of being able to uh, reach the American dream uh, if you're willing to work for it. You know, I always tell folks when I give my talks, I say, "Look, I'm a religious man. I'm a Catholic man, but I also know." Nothing's gonna fall from the sky for me. <laughs> Anything I want in this world of ours, you gotta work for it. And 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 I, my father taught me that at a very young age. And you saw that fact that working with my grandfather in the fields picking tomatoes. I mean, they taught us that work ethic. And they said nothing's gonna come for free in this world. And uh, I certainly believed it. And I just developed a great work ethic as a result.
0: Incredible. Um, well, you know, if we're gonna go through the story, we might as well go through the story. Again, the book is called Reaching for the Stars. And, uh, and as I read the story, look folks, I can't read, I'm not gonna read the whole book. That's not what we're here for. But you gotta get the book to get all the details. The, the level of detail that you give is incredible. It's a, it's a, there's funny parts in the book, there's sad parts in the book, there's triumphant parts in the book, and there's failure in the book. So it covers the full spectrum That's of, right. of human emotions. And so if you, if you want to hear the full story, you got to get the book. Again, it's called Reaching for the Stars. Um, so I'm going to jump ahead a little bit. Here we go. I was born August 7th, 1962 in French Camp, California. At that time, my family lived in Stockton, California. That is where the story of my life begins. I grew up surrounded by the love of my family and the many hardships that come along with being part of a migrant family. My memory begins at the age of five, precisely as I, the time I started school. I remember boarding this bus to school when we were living out in the countryside near the city of Modesto. The school located in, in the small town of Salida. Am I saying that right? Salida. Salida. Salida seemed very large and was filled with students who seemed a lot bigger and older than me. The classrooms were decorated and filled with rows of shiny new desks. The desks had built-in compartments that allowed us to store pencils, crayons, and papers. I could not believe I was assigned my own beautiful desk. Phrases of gratitude were silently running through my head, but all I could do was stare at the blackboard because I did not speak the language. I tried to figure out the meaning of what was written down and drawn in colored chalk. I never dared to raise my hand to ask a question, let alone answer one. I also never fully participated in any of the classroom kindergarten activities like singing, storytelling, or playing board games. It came as no surprise that my kindergarten teacher, whom I called La Mastra, spoke only English. She was not sure I understood everything that was being taught, much less being said. I remained silent with the hope of being invisible to everyone. So, that's what it kicks off of going into school no english zero yes. yes and and the teachers they're just teaching in english and that's that exactly deal yeah. with it
1: in, in in those days there weren't any programs like english as a second language where they put you and they try to uh beef up your english skills they just threw you in the general population and uh you sank or swam mm-hmm. you know and then and, and that's the way it was and you know there's uh, proponents that say that's the way it should be, and there's others that say, no, we need an English as a second language uh, mm-hmm. a, 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 as a program to help the weaker students. Uh, and so, but in that particular case, I had no choice. I was just thrown in there.
0: What do you think? What's the way to do it? So, just straight immersion? What's your opinion? When uh, I went to college, I took Spanish. Yes. I took three semesters of Spanish. And I had a friend that's Mexican that I took Spanish mm-hmm. with, and he grew up speaking Spanish. I got better grades than him in Spanish class. And I couldn't, I, when I got done, I could barely, even, you know, I'd go to a Mexican restaurant. I couldn't, I was worthless. I was worthless <laughs> at speaking it. But I, I learned like the rules yes, of grammar, exactly. Right? Yeah. But I remember sometimes the teachers, they had the thought, the professors had the thought that you, you, this is immersion. And so they, would, they wouldn't speak to you in any, in any English at all. And I thought to myself, sometimes I, I thought to myself, I really wish I you would answer
1: this question for me because I don't know. I'm not figuring this out. I don't know. What do you think? I think it should be a hybrid mm-hmm. uh, because I think there's uh, students that will do well under an immersion program. And then there's other students that uh, really need that extra help uh, so that they can uh, get to that next level. And I'll tell you, you know, <clears throat> my first experience in kindergarten was um, – Uh, was just as you described it there, but it actually occurred in three different places. Because, um, you know, my story begins well before I was even born. My parents are from the central state of Michoacan in Mexico. And my father, at the young age of 15, out of economic necessity, he uh, comes from a family of 12, he's one of the oldest boys, he had to come and work in California as uh, in, 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 in what he knew, which was agriculture. And he quickly set up a routine, which was common amongst the, uh, folks from Michoacan, which was you would spend two months in Southern California, Ontario, Chino area, picking strawberries. Then, two, uh, then you would move up to Salinas and you pick uh, strawberries and lettuce. And then you would go up to the Stockton Modesto area for five months. There you start off with the cucumbers, then the cherries, then uh, then you got onions and peaches and uh, you end, and tomatoes, and then you end the harvest with the grape harvest. And then he would go back home for three months and cool his heels. Well, when he was 19, he met my mother from the same hometown. They got married. And she was the, uh, at the old ripe age of 14, you know, which would have been a crime these days now, right? But, uh, but, but they, they got married, and luckily my dad uh, incorporated my mom into this nomadic lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And of course, kids come along uh, during the um, marriage, right? And there's four right. of us. I'm the youngest of four. And where you we were born dictated on what month you were born in. See, I was born in August. Okay, so, so you were, you were I, an American uh, then. The last stop, <laughs> yes, the last stop. I was, uh, and my brother was born in September. Then I got a brother and sister born in December, and they were born in Mexico. Well, getting back to now imagine we were living this nomadic lifestyle as a kid, mm-hmm. and Spanish is the only uh, language I knew how to speak. Right. Now imagine the kindergarten. My first kindergarten is going to um, in the Ontario Chino area. You know, I, I, they 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 stick me in there just as I learn where the bathrooms at. They take me to Salinas, and just as I learn where those bathrooms are at, I'm down to my third kindergarten teacher in Stockton, and uh, and so you could imagine it wasn't a very conducive environment to uh, to learn. And that's that's eventually
0: why your dad decided to stay up in America, right?
1: Yes, yes. As a matter of fact, um, in the second, uh, and remind me to. To say something about my teacher at the end when we blast off and all that, because I always forget to tell that part of the story, which okay. is which is pretty cool. But 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 uh, it wasn't until I was in the second grade. In the second grade, we were in our last stop in Stockton, and my dad gets up in the morning about a week a week before um, a week before we go to Mexico. He makes the what we call the. Gran anuncio, the big announcement. (laughs) And the big announcement was he would get up and say, kids, we're going to Mexico next week. Talk to your teachers and get three months worth of homework. Why three months? Because that's what we stayed over there. And my father my parents didn't put us in school over there because uh, uh, Christmas vacation came along and all that. They said, no, 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 no. You guys are going to self-study. And so my mom would wake us up every morning in my grandma's house Uh, We would go to the kitchen. They would give us a cup of hot chocolate, piece of French bread. From 8 in the morning to 12, all four of us would be doing our homework. The homework was stained of chocolate, but we got it done. (laughs) And and, and so in the second grade, when he told us to do that, to get the homework, I went to my second grade teacher, Miss Young, and uh, man, she was a you know second grade. Who's your first crush? You know, you know, <laughs> you know guilty as charged. You know, in my mind, it was me and Miss Young. You know, and and and, and I remember um, she was tall, young, uh, Asian, and black, long black hair, and tall relatively to a second grader. Because now I see her, the poor thing is short, <laughs> but she was tall back then. And um, and I asked her for 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 the uh, for my homework. And she looked at me with this frustrated look and said, you tell your parents I'm going to come home and talk to them. And that's when uh, Miss Young came and convinced my parents that we needed to stay in one place. And, uh, and, and that's what sort of changed the whole dynamics, the whole direction of our family. And I love to tell the story to educators because mm-hmm. uh, you know, I tell them, hey, I know you feel like you're not making a difference. Uh, But let me tell you one little thing my teacher did that changed the trajectory of a whole family. And I tell them this nice story about Miss Young.
0: And she actually came to your house to meet your parents and tell them that? She
1: did, yes. Uh, My mom, uh, when she she told me that she was going to come and talk to him that evening, I went running home. I didn't even wait for my siblings because they were in elementary school, too. I went running home cuz I, you know, I felt like Paul Revere, right? Teachers coming, <laughs> teachers coming, you know, with the lamps, you know, and uh and and and, and I tell my dad and my mom about it. and my mom, of course, like any Latina woman, instead of uh worrying about cuz my dad first when I told him the teacher was coming, he started taking off his belt cuz he said you must have <laughs> did something bad. And I I kind of backtrack and convince him it had to do with our trip to Mexico. And my mom, different priority, she actually said, "We have to sweep and mop and make a nice dinner uh, because uh, the teacher's coming. And so, yeah, they pulled out all the bells and whistles when the teacher came. I loved when visitors came to our house because, you know, we lived a very humble life. I never, ever went to bed hungry thanks to my parents' hard work. But I'll tell you, man, we had our fair share of beans and rice and tortillas and uh, salsa. But when visitors came... The protein magically appeared yeah. <laughs> in the form of a nice thin steak, you know, chicken or a pork chop. And uh, I remember I used to get so happy when my dad would say, hey, uh, your uncle's coming or your grandpa's coming. Translation, we're going to have meat on the table. <laughs> so, but but yes, yeah, she actually came and, uh, and she convinced. And she told a beautiful story to my dad to convince him because my dad is a very um, – what what what? what uh, how how should I put it? A very uh, proud man, and um, and I remember after dinner they went to the small living room, and and um, and my dad and Miss Young thanked my mom for the dinner after she brought coffee, and she basically said I didn't really come here to uh, to to have dinner, but thank you very much. I really came to talk to you about the education process of your four kids. And I remember this story because my dad and mom did not speak English at the time. Miss Young didn't speak Spanish, so I was the official translator since she was my teacher. And and, and when she said that, that she was here uh, to talk about the education process of the four kids, my dad immediately got uncomfortable because I know what's going through my dad's mind. He was saying, it's not a complaint of one kid, it's a complaint of four kids. You know, mm-hmm. and Miss Young said, saw how how uncomfortable sh- he got, and she said, "No, it doesn't. It, it, it's quite the contrary, Señor. It has to do it, the fact that I've had the privilege of having your four kids in my class, and let me tell you, they all love school. They're good students." I said, "But this nomadic lifestyle that you're living uh, is not helping them." And my dad immediately stops Miss Young, and says, "Hey, hang, wait, 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 wait." He says. It's, it's true that that uh, uh, my wife and I only have a third grade elementary education. We're farm workers. And um, and while my kids help me in the weekends in the fields and seven days a week during the summer, whenever they're school, I said, they're either in school or they're doing their homework. They're self-studying. I said, we, we take serious their education. And Miss Young said, yes, but... You move from, to three different towns, three different school districts. You know what my dad's response was? He said, yes, we, but we move on a Saturday. <laughs> Which was true. We finished school on a Friday. Monday we were in the new town, new school district, and we were in school. So we didn't miss a day of school. He was right about that. <laughs> and, and then Miss Young said, yes, but then you go to Mexico for three months. And my dad says, yes, but they take your homework <laughs> so in my dad's eyes he was meeting his obligation of uh, giving us an education he didn't realize that moving us around was detrimental to the process the educational process and miss young was clearly frustrated and then i watched her closely and then she kind of smiles almost as if she got an idea and you know she must have studied psychology cuz she she was brilliant at it the first thing she does is, is, is she caters to my dad's ego. She looks at Mr. Hernandez and says, Mr. Hernandez, your kids tell me that you have many years experience in agriculture. I said, man, I think you can be considered an expert on agriculture issues. Oh, man, you didn't have to tell that to my dad. my dad starts pulling up his collar. <laughs> so, oh, well, yeah, I'm not sure I'll, I could be considered an expert, but I do know a thing or two about plants. Can I help you? And, man, Miss Young lets out a bigger smile. <laughs> she, she took the, he, <laughs> took took the <laughs> he took the bait. He took the bait. And, uh, and Miss Young said, well, yes, as a matter of fact, you can. She said, you know, I'm going to give you a problem, and you can tell me what happens because I think that's going to help me, but I think it's also going to help you. And my dad says, sure. So what's the problem? She goes and she says, imagine I give you a small tree in a potted plant. I'm going to give it to you. It's a fruit tree. And my dad says, well, thank you. He said, now I want you to find <clears throat> the best ground, fertile ground, dig a hole, and you plant it. And you take good care of it like the expert that you are. You're going to fertilize it, water it everything. You take good care of it. My dad says, I can do that for you, Miss Young. Absolutely. Then she looks at him and says, three months later, I want you to find another piece of ground equally as good. Dig a hole. Transplant that tree there. Keep taking care of it. My dad puzzled look now, says, okay. And then Miss Young very quickly says, and then another three months, what's more, every three months, I want you to transplant that tree. Mr. Hernandez, but you're going to take good care of it. It's going to get all the water, all the fertilizer, all the nutrients it needs, because you're the expert. You're going to take good care of it. Then she looks straight in the eye to him and says, now, you tell me what happens in the long run to that tree? Oh, my dad starts thinking, starts combing his mustache (laughs) like he likes to when he's very pensive. and says, well, Miss Young, that's very easy. He says, the tree's not going to die. But you're going to stunt its growth because it's going to be weak. And if it's a fruit tree, it probably won't even bear fruit. Why? Let me tell you why. So a tree needs to be in one place so the roots can grow deep and the branches. even raises up his hands so <laughs> the branches can grow big and tall. And he's doing this, and you can count to two seconds, big and tall. And then you can see his facial <laughs> express. He got it. I mean, yeah. he got it. It took him two seconds, but he got it because he sheepishly kind of put his hand down. <laughs> and I gotta give because my dad's very proud, but I gotta give him credit that day because he, you know, he could have uh, got mad or denial or whatever, but he actually just looked at Miss Young and said, is that what you mean? And Miss Young said, that's exactly what I mean. I think my job is done here. And she excused herself, and she went off. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you, that year we still went to Mexico, but on the way back, we used to go by car, and from Stockton to Michoacán, it's almost a three-day trip. Mm -hmm. On the way back that year, we didn't stop in Ontario, Chino. We kept driving north. We didn't stop in Central California, Salinas, so we kept driving north, and we went straight to Stockton. <clears throat> from then on, that was our first and only stop. And then our trips back to Mexico, we still went every year, but our trips to Mexico shrank from three months to three weeks, centered around Christmas vacation, mm-hmm. and uh, all of a sudden our education started to get traction. And wh- why-, why did it happen? Oh, because the visit of one teacher. And this is why I always love telling this story to educators. I said, you just never know what little seed you're going to plant that's going to give fruit, no pun intended, in terms of uh, helping kids. I said. so whenever you're down and out, think of this story, because I'm sure there's something you've done in your career that's affected a kid. You may not know about it, but I'm sure something that you've done positive has helped a family. Yeah, no doubt about it. That's an
0: awesome story. I know there's another thing you mentioned in here that had an impact on you. <clears throat> I'm going to the book. It says Star Trek was my favorite show growing up. My brother Chava had a toy model of the USS Enterprise spaceship from the show, which was my favorite toy to borrow and play with for hours and hours. In Stockton, where we spent a majority of the year. While in California, we lived in a small rented three-bedroom house located on the east side of town. It was an old house made of wood with a tile roof. and had a small bathroom, a round dining table, and a living room with old furniture. Although the kitchen was small, it was always stocked with the necessities for making a delicious Mexican meal, tortillas, tomatoes, peppers, and onions. The cuarto or bedroom I shared with Chava and Gil had only two beds, a desk, and a dresser. Our furniture was rather austere, and most of the pieces were secondhand. The most luxurious item my family owned was the black and white television set, and even that was old by normal standards. The street we lived on reflected the humbleness of its residents, my family included, with a few exceptions, my neighbor's made a living working either in the fields or the canneries. The canneries process vegetables and fruits brought directly from the fields. This is where the tomatoes are packaged after being turned into ketchup or paste and where the fruits are canned to become fruit cocktail. I came from a world bordered by limitations, primarily financial ones. Fortunately, as a child, I occupied myself with something that did not require any dinero, because it was free. No one knew about my special hobby because I did not talk about it. Fueled by the scenes of Star Trek, I spent my time looking up at the sky, especially at night. At the time, I did not know exactly what had mesmerized me, but there was something up in the sky that fascinated me. I spent hours in my bedroom gazing through the window and staring up at the stars. I stared at the stars thinking those stars over there are twinkling, and that one over there is not. Those over there look yellow, while those over there look blue. All of them appear to be the same, but they all are so different. So even from a young age, you were you were fascinated by what, what you were seeing up in space.
1: Yes, and what really helped was the fact that um, <clears throat> aside from watching the first run Star Trek series and William Shatner, <laughs> who, by the way, recently... Became a real astronaut, right? He went up into space. That's right. That's right. He, he just did. Crossed it's the Carmen right? line. So he uh, he became an astronaut, got his wings. But but um, <clears throat> what what really inspired me was, uh, you know, after watching things like Star Trek, uh, Lost in Space and those type of programs, um, when we, we used to go out to the fields, it used to be in the early dawn. It was still dark outside. And so we would go out to the fields away from the light pollution and so you're in pitch dark still. The sun uh, hasn't come up. It still needs 20, 30 minutes for it to come up. I c- would go outside, and you would go up and you let your eyes adapt, and you stargaze, and you can see the stars so clearly, you know. And you know, even clouds, you know, like the Milky Way, mm-hmm. those type of things, you can make out. Cause it was so clear, and uh, and those are the things that really. Grabbed my imagination and I said, you know, one day I'm gonna, I'm gonna be up there.
0: <laughs> uh, you have a good section in here. You learned just an awesome lesson from your dad. <clears throat> you say this as I grew older, I would. This is, this is now you're working, you're working in the fields. As I grew older, I would learn the manas, or bad habits, of the other workers. This included bending the bottom of their metal buckets inward to create less volume and thus appear to fill each bucket even more quickly. That's for the cucumbers, (laughs) yes. I would also learn how to swiftly reseat a bucket of pepinos to make it look more full when it was really not. All tricks of the trade, I told myself. This was how we Hernandez kids spent our weekends and summers. We knew that it was our responsibility to do and there was no way of getting around that. Every morning spent in the fields promised us the same routine of going to and fro, picking fruits or vegetables from the ground as the rays of the hot sun hit our backs. During one Saturday in particular, I fell over accidentally stepping on a yellow overgrown pepino that was rotten. I remember its rotten stench as I threw down my bucket standing there thinking, I'm all covered in mud, I stink, I'm tired, and I'm sunburned. My siblings can continue working alongside my parents, but I'm not going to anymore. I want to go home, watch TV, and play. I decided to quit. I went to my father and pulled on his pant leg to tell him, Dad, I'm tired, I want to go home. When he heard what I told him, he leaned down, took hold of both my shoulders, and with a surprised look on his face, asked, what's wrong? Did something happen? Are you okay? Look at me. I'm dirty. I fell in the mud. I want to leave. Plus, I've already made $10 for the day, I cried to him. The day's almost over, he said. Just keep on working. I don't want to. Fine, he said. Take a good look at yourself. You don't want to see, you don't like what you see right now? You don't like working in the fields in the hot sun or getting dirty? Am I right? Well, if you quit now, you'll be creating a pattern that is easy to conform to. If you don't work hard in school or in life, this will be your future. Is that what you want? No, I answered him. Well then, don't settle for $10. The day is almost over. Get back to work, he ordered, with just the right balance of authority and love, and his version of tough love. What my father told me that day in the fields changed the trajectory of my life. It turned into the speech that transcended the end of a long day of working in the fields. We would hear it when all four of us sat in the backseat of our ramshackle car. Father would turn around to look at us before he would turn on the engine and he would say, so how do you guys feel right now? We, of course, tired, sweaty, covered with mud, and we would answer accordingly. Good, he would say, because you kids have the privilege of living your future right now. Living our future right now, we would ask curiously. Yes, he would say. I'm not going to force you to go to school or get good grades, but if you don't, this is the type of job you'll have for the rest of your life. This is the future that awaits you. So if you want to quit school right now, no problem. I invite you to start coming to work with me every day as of tomorrow. My father's words made me realize that if I continued going to school, I could do whatever it was I wanted to do in life. If I studied hard, I might one day make enough money so my parents would no longer have to work in the fields. To this day, I believe my father's words changed the course of my destiny, and I am so grateful to him for that. I sometimes talk about the fact that I think one of the hardest things for kids to do is connect what they're doing right now to their future. They don't understand that exactly. how hard they work right now is going to put them wherever they end up in the future. And your dad made that connection
1: loud and clear for you all, didn't he? <laughs> exactly. And uh, he put it very well in saying you have the privilege because he said, you know, your neighbors, you know, aren't working in the fields during the summer. They're off goofing off and having fun. Uh, your friends, they're in the neighborhood. They're not doing that. But you are. So, See, they don't know what their future is like. So they're happy-go-lucky, carefree, and they don't care diddly squat about going to school. But you know what your future is at here. It is you're living it. So you want to do this the rest of your life? And I said, man, I don't want to do this. <laughs> I think I'm gonna I'm gonna do well in school because I want something better than this. And so, so it was a hard lesson. I know my my kid.
0: One of my kids was telling me the other day we were walking through our town, and there was you know like a some some homeless drug addicts, clearly on drugs, clearly just <clears throat> in a totally bad position in life. And they were telling me that when they were little, I would walk by those people and say, That's what drugs do to you. And they remember that. It's the same yeah. I, the same tip the exactly. uh, same type of approach your dad took.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Uh,
0: left an impression on you. Um <clears throat> So now I'm going to fast forward a little bit again. You got to get the book to get the whole story. I'm skipping giant swaths of mm-hmm. the book, but um, going fast forward a little bit here. Things at school continue to get better. Making friends became easier and speaking English became less of a challenge. As time passed, I did not consider myself fluent in the language until the age of 12. On the other hand, mathematics never gave me any problems. I had my routine down and I followed it strictly as a soldier would every day after school. I would, do my homework, watch TV, and then play outside. The only things that differed from day to day were the questions that invaded my mind. I made it my personal mission to track down the answers to every single query that popped into my thoughts, constantly pursuing knowledge while satisfying my curiosity.
1: You were into school, huh? Yeah. You know what really helped was um, my father, <clears throat> you know, in those days they, um, they had the World Book Encyclopedia. Mm-hmm. And they used to have salesmen that would come to your house <laughs> yeah. and they sell them to you. And I remember my dad, they came one day and it was expensive. It wasn't, it was like 300, back then it was like 300 some odd dollars or something. And, you know, my parents didn't have that kind of money, but they bought the whole A through Z mm-hmm. selection. Well, I'm glad
0: they didn't just get like A through E. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs>
1: <laughs> exactly. They bought the whole thing and man, whenever I needed to find something out, it's the good yeah. old World Book Encyclopedia. Yeah. I would read it. I would even go to the bathroom and take you know A with me or B or whatever. <laughs> yeah. and, you know, thumb through it as you do your business. But but that you know those little things that my father did really uh, really helped out.
0: Where do you think your your father? Obviously, he had this incredible grasp on the fact of how important education was. Where did he get that from?
1: I think um, I think it, he got it from the fact that he had been working in the fields himself since he was 15. Mm-hmm. He came, even before then, back at home, he used to work in the fields. And he, I think he realized, he says, hey, I, I don't want to put my kids through this. And uh, when he saw, when he came to to um, the States, you know, he saw what people uh, w- that had an education, what kind of jobs they have. And that's what he kind of, you know, wanted us. My mother, you know... Both my father and my mother had they have they if they had gotten an education, I think they would have been well renowned psychologists because uh, they were they were like expert expert motivators. Uh, my mother, I remember, every Friday we used to um, we used to cash uh, the ch- we used to get paid in the field. They still gave you checks, paper checks back then, and um, and so. On Friday after work, we would go directly to a gas station, Chevron gas station. that had a little mini mart. My siblings would go inside while my dad gassed up, and uh, they would buy, you know, chips and soda, uh, sodas. And um, and and I would say, hey, get me one too. Because my mom would then drag me like across the street to Bank of America to to cash the checks. And um, and I remember we were standing there inside the bank. It was about four in the afternoon, hot summer day, about over hundred outside, and you know you go into a bank, nice and cool, right? And that air conditioning, uh, and so we're standing there in line, and I'm minding my own business, enjoying the uh, the cool the cool <laughs> weather there, and uh, and then I, I, I feel a tug on my shirt, and it's my mom. I said, "I said, well, what's up, mom?" And she points to what obviously is the bank manager. And she says, what do you see there? And it was this this dude, uh, you know, a very nice tailored suit with a nice tie and dressed very nice. And obviously he was, you know, one of the muckety mucks there in the bank, right? And I said, well, I see a man. And she says, no. I said, I see you. I said, look at yourself right now. Of course, I was sweaty, kind of dry cake mud on my Levi's pants. And uh, tired and it says look at your hands and uh, you know they're all dirty and everything I said this is why you have to pointing to my head says this is why you have to work with this if you work with this that's how you're going to dress and this is where you're going to work in a place like this air conditioning inside in the shade but if you work with this it says your body is going to break down you may be able to do it for a few years, but eventually your body's gonna break down. So she would always say, ojo, ay, mm-hmm. you know, you better do well in school. So they both kind of like bombarded us from different directions mm-hmm. and uh, subtle and not too subtle ways of uh, of making sure. And she was the one that was um, helped us develop the study habits, because as soon as we came home, you know, my parents would always race from the fields back home to make sure they were home before we got home from school so we wouldn't find an empty house. And uh, my mom's routine was she would dart to the kitchen. She would make her fresh tortillas, uh, the beans, rice, and salsa. And that was the bait because we would come home from school. (laughs) We would come home from school. We were hungry, and she would sit us down, and she would feed us. But then we couldn't get up. He says, "Crack open your books. Show me that you finish your homework. Do your homework and show me you finished And only until then, we would be allowed to get up and go to uh, play outside with our friends." But she was the one that instilled those study habits that you know c- came in handy once you started college. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fact that you had that discipline of saying, "Hey, I got to take care of this before I go enjoy myself." <laughs> <clears throat>
0: Here's another impactful moment. Fast forward a little bit. It was during that particular summer of 1969 when a major event occurred that would make a big difference in my life. Despite the war in Vietnam, the internal conflicts in the US and the hippie movement, it was an important year for humanity. It was a year that left a strong impression on me at the tender age of seven. On the morning of July 20th, 1969, the entire world was glued to the television set, waiting in awe for an historic event to take place. Mankind had managed to do the unthinkable. A person was about to set foot on the moon. Later that night, the first images of Neil Armstrong on the surface of the La Luna were transmitted into households around the globe when he put his foot on the moon and he uttered the famous line that transcended time. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. When I heard these words, I felt indescribably shocked. I was captivated by this man, by this science, which left me in awe. Absorbed in the broadcast, I got up abruptly to get closer to the television screen. I had an epiphany. During that exact moment, I discovered what I wanted to be when I grew up, an astronaut. And from that moment on, I was determined that absolutely nothing would get in the way of my dream. (laughs)
1: <laughs> and thus the dream was born. <laughs> there it is. You remember watching that, huh? Yeah. Yeah. It was such a big event. Uh, you know, I think everybody uh would uh in in the uni- in the whole world, the whole plan, world w- yeah. was watching that because it was an amazement cuz to think that um you know, the Apollo rocket and the capsule you know, which has less computing power than your average cell phone <laughs> Was able to go and using vacuum tube technology, we were able to go to the surface of the moon, send a couple of humans down there, and then bring them back home safe and sound. I mean, it was just amazing. It was like uh, Star Trek going live, you know, for real. <laughs> it's, it's, it's too, so I was just amazed, and I was, uh, you know, I was saying, you know, this is, this is what I want to be.
0: Another your parents are getting a lot of credit a lot of credit today Here's another little point where they get a ton of credit The only people I did share this dream with were my parents and to my pleasant surprise They offered me with words of encouragement My father sat me down at the same kitchen table where my mother made us do our homework every day and offered me a few words of advice He said if I followed his recipe I could do anything that I wanted to when I grew up because we lived in the United States He explained to me that my siblings and I had the opportunity to live the American dream. Looking at me very seriously, he said, first, identify what you wanna be when you grow up. Second, know how far you are from your goal. Third, draw yourself a roadmap that gives you all the steps it will take to get there. Fourth, get yourself a good education. Fifth, and finally, apply the same work ethic that you have in your work in the fields to your books and subsequently to your job once you graduate from college. Mix all this together, Jose, and you can be successful at anything you want to do,
1: including becoming an astronaut. Yeah. Out of the gate. And I took that hook, line, and sinker. Because, you know, when when you're 7 and you're 10 years old and your father tells you something, you believe it. So if he told me, follow this recipe and... You'll become an astronaut. Man, I took that hook, line, and sinker. I said, I'm going to be an astronaut. Mm-hmm. I really believed it at the time because I said, these are steps I can follow. And uh, I believed my father. And uh, this is why I, I love sharing that recipe because it works. It works. And this is why I, uh, I try to tell people, I said, to reach your full potential, I said, follow these five simple ingredients later i added a sixth ingredient which is perseverance and we'll talk about right. that a little <laughs> later but but i added that sixth ingredient and i said you guys follow these six ingredients i said you know sky's no longer the limit space is because i proved that
0: <laughs> you know what's amazing when you were sitting there saying that when you're a kid and your parents tell you something you listen to them i mean imagine if your dad would have had a different attitude imagine if your dad would have said oh, you'll never be an astronaut, or you you don't have the chance of doing I that. I would have never been You no never one. would have
1: done it. No, because I, I would have believed him. I said, you know, this is too monumental for me, and where I'm at, social, economically, you know, it's not for me. And I would have believed it mm-hmm. if my dad would have told me that, and but it, he didn't.
2: It, it sounded like early on your dad especially was pretty adamant about you understanding that your future is your choice, you know, and he he provided the alternative Right up front for you, you experienced it, you know, working in the fields. Um, And then, so I've got to imagine you coming to him with a choice. You've decided, you know, at this point as a young kid that space is is it for you, you know, being an astronaut. So I've got to imagine, you know, he was really open to that. And, and, you know, uh, and,
1: and I'm certain, you know, he didn't believe I could reach it. Right, you know, obviously, but but he was uh, so interested in us getting an education Mm -hmm. that it it it, it's like you know, he said if that's what motivates him to go to college, finish high school, and go to college, so be it. Right. I mean, this is the same thing I tell my kid, my oldest kid. He's a um, he's finishing up his PhD in Purdue in aerospace engineering. Has two masters, a bachelor's, and. and, and I told him, you know, when, when I hooded him for his first master's, you were standing there in line. We had never talked about his future in terms of where he wanted to work, and I, I thought he was, uh, he was done with his first master's, but, you know, he, he said he was going to, to graduate school and he wanted his Ph.D. And I said, oh, cool, great, that's great. Um, and and, and, and um, I remember I, as I, I, we were standing there in line, and I told him, son, why, why Purdue? And uh, he said, That, you know, I took a page off of your book. He says, I um I made a list of all the astronauts that got selected by NASA, where they graduated, and guess which school has graduated the most astronauts? I said, Let me guess, Purdue. <laughs> he said, Yes, including wow. Neil Armstrong. Wow. And so so that's nice. when I told him, you know, that's when I told him I said, Son, if wanting to be an astronaut motivates you to get your Ph.D., I said you go on and be an astronaut because you know what? Once you get that Ph.D., there's going to be a lot of opportunities mm-hmm. open up for you. You may not make it to be an astronaut, but I think you will. I said I think you can make it, but you're going to have so many other choices in life with two masters and a, <laughs> and a Ph.D. and bachelor's. And so, uh, so yeah, exactly. Powerful. Yeah.
0: Um, Your family eventually um, moves into a little place and and eventually buys a place. Yes. Eventually buys a place. You say here, after a few more years of renting, my parents would buy this house from the landlord. The landlord facilitated a rent-to-own finance plan that I, as a 12-year-old kid, helped translate and explain to my father. Finally, the family had a place to call home, although our new barrio or neighborhood was far from ideal. It had a slew of problems, just as any other barrio in South and East Stockton did. Since we were in, the old, in one of the older, more depressed neighborhood, we witnessed far more crime than other people who lived in the newer part of town. I started to become more, fast forward a little bit, I started to become more social at school and in my barrio. It was at Fremont Middle School where I met Carlos and his older brother, Alberto. Another person I hung around with in school was my friend, Sergio. He lived across the street from me. The four of us were like brothers. We stick together through our adolescent years. We were there for each other in good times and in bad times. Do you guys know what a pocho is? Asked Carlos while we were sitting on the stairs in front of my house. No, Sergio and I answered jointly. A pocho is a Mexican born here in the United States who is neither a Mexican nor an American. Like us, he explained. Carlos and Sergio wore those white t-shirts without sleeves, baggy gray khaki pants, and shiny black Stacy Adams dress shoes that always looked too big for their feet. Their accessories generally consisted of a bandana either neatly folded in their back pocket or worn around their head covering most of their forehead and a chain that hung from their belt loop. Is it a bad thing to be a pocho? I asked. No, but in case you haven't noticed, they don't seem to like us here in the U.S. or in Mexico. They will pick on us here or there. That's why we have to stick together. If we don't, we'll be easy targets and they'll get us. Who will get us? The gringos and the Mexicans that have come straight from Mexico as I said they don't like us when we go to Mexico They tell us that we're too Americanized meanwhile the gringos call us dirty Mexicans either way. We can't win It's like we have no roots and don't belong. don't seem to belong in either place. I'm telling you that's why we have to stick together Fast forward a little bit things around my neighborhood were never easy gangs were everywhere they were, they, and they congregated on a daily basis, hoping to define their territories. Drugs like marijuana were commonly used and sold in our barrio. Drive-by shootings occurred to a lesser extent, but nonetheless kept the neighborhood on edge. Families were dysfunctional, divided, and grew apart due to inattentive parents suffering from alcoholism or other various addictions. The children from these broken homes were quickly recruited to join gangs. So year after year, the membership of these groups multiplied. I admit that it was difficult to escape that environment. Although I managed to steer clear of such activities, I had to somewhat assimilate in order to survive. Soon my appearance and attitude began to change. As I spent more time with Carlos, Alberto, and Sergio, I became tougher and tougher. Or so I thought. I began wearing baggy pants, oversized flannel shirts, and shoes that were one size too big. I walked down the streets with an attitude while I was emulating Alberto's gestures. My objective was to conceal the true Jose while trying to look like the rest of my peers. I did not want to be labeled a schoolboy or bookworm so that I could avoid being harassed. However, when I was in class and with my family, I was my true self. I was playful, studious, and responsible. But when I was on the streets, I was one of the homeboys, as we pochos would call ourselves. The price of assimilation was steep. Soon I started to deny I knew how to speak Spanish, and I began paying less attention to my Mexican roots. So there's some alternative paths besides the one that you were trying to go down. That's right,
1: that's right. Uh, you know, the, these three friends of mine that... And what age group, what age are you at this point? This is a junior high. This is, so Did we're talking know, so like 12, 13? 12, 13, 14, yeah. Yeah, and and, and it's it's at that point where you kind of, you know, there's there's some points in your life that marks you that says, hey, you know, I've got to change the way things are in in the direction I'm heading. Because I was doing that with my friends because you had to do that in the neighborhood. But then you went back to school, you went back home, and you tried to clean yourself up so that— your parents don't see like you're turning into a thug, right? Kind of thing, and, and 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 then you start thinking about, okay, I'm doing this more and more and more. Am I going in too deep? Kind of thing, and you try to extract yourself from it, and um, and you see your my buddies. You know they went into it, and you know they went into it feet first and didn't try to come back. They you know they embraced it and got deeper and deeper. Then started using drugs. I didn't use drugs. Then they started dealing with drugs. And, you know, when I started seeing all these things of how it was changing them, because they were a good two, three months ahead of me in the process of transformation, if you will. Mm-hmm. And I saw where they were heading. I kind of saw that road map. And I said, man, I don't want to be like them. And little by little, I just started pulling away, hanging out less and less with them. And uh, to the point that when I got into high school, You know, well, these guys made the transition to high school probably one semester, and then they just stopped going, and I kept going to high school, of course, and uh, and so so they were still my homeboys. They were still in the neighborhood, and um, and in a sense, it was great that they were still around because you know that was kind of like the protection that I that I had in the neighborhood uh, because they knew I was, you know, everybody else knew I was associated with them and so no one dared mess with me because then they had to respond to these guys and these guys were very good and you know they respect the decision i made and it's not like they harassed me and said, oh no we're gonna get you now because you left that they actually said no you go do it
0: that's uh that's pretty awesome for them to be able to say that because a lot of times what you find with kids is they don't want anyone to get ahead they don't want right. anyone to go further They'd rather just drag them back down. And, and I, I see that in every... Actually, I see that not just with kids. I see that with with humans, human beings. There's a lot of human beings that when somebody makes a move to try and elevate and try and go further and try and do more, people discourage them instead of encouraging them.
1: Yeah, it, 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 it's the, uh, crabs the, yeah, the crabs in the bucket crabs in the buckets. That's you know? it. One starts coming out, hey, come on down here, and you get pulled back down.
0: So that's a yeah. real... It's a real testament to those guys that yep. they actually, instead of trying to drag you back down, they tried to lift you up and help you get out of there. Yeah. Um, was, there was there anything that, that happened that you saw? Well, well, how did you recognize that the path that they were going down was not the right path? Because, you know, you write it about it in here. Here are these guys. you know, when you're 13, 14 years old, what do you want? Well, you want money, you want girls. You know, you want a, co- a cool car. You want to be popular. And here were these guys. Well, guess what? They had money. They had, you know. They had girls. They had girls. Yeah. So they, they kind of had the stuff that a young 14, 15-year-old kid wants. How did you realize that the path that they were going down was the wrong path?
1: Uh, very easy. We went we went uh, cruising one day. We we would cruise around Stribbley Park. And then uh, we got shot at. Mm -hmm. That wakes you up. (laughs) I said, I don't want to be a statistic. Mm -hmm. You know, we got shot at and because these guys are dealing and must have been dealing in the wrong area. And uh, they got shot at, and I was in there, you know, innocent bystander, but I was there, and they were caring, uh, you know, and I said, man, I don't want to do this. This is not how I want to end up.
0: And you were able to see
1: that, luckily. Yeah. yeah.
0: You know, you tell you've got another story in here that's uh, an interesting story. It's good it's just a good life lesson. You found a wallet with money in oh, it. Oh yeah. Tell us that story real quick.
1: Yeah, yeah. We we found a um I found a wallet and um in uh, I forget how much money. It had a significant had like about six, seven hundred dollars in it. Wow. Cash. Dang. <laughs> and uh but it had a uh it had a you know, an ID and everything and and I had an address and everything, and um, and I remember I found it. I went home to my dad, you know, and I said, hey, "Dad, I found this wallet." He said, "What's in it?" I said, "There's about six hundred bucks in it." My dad looks at it first, and you know, I could see the temptation he had just as I, as I did. And I think more than anything, he just wanted to teach me a lesson and said, "You know, um, if there's an owner here, uh, we ought to try and reach out." For him and, and try and do it. And unfortunately, he lived like in Oakland or somewhere who uh, was visiting uh, relatives. So we waited like about a week or two when we had a weekend and then we drove to Oakland and we found the address and then I gave it to the guy. The guy, it was an older man, you know, probably in his 60s, uh, and said something about it. he had sold something, a car or something. I forget what he did. and said he had lost the whole wallet and he thought he would never see it. He couldn't believe it. And uh, you yeah, he gave me a twenty dollar reward or something like that, and I was happy. I said hey, I did something good, and I got twenty bucks out of it. So, and I think he gave my dad another twenty for the gas and stuff. Yeah, but yeah,
0: but teaching that lesson of the doing the right thing, yeah. doing the right thing, even though it might sting your sting your yeah. finances a little yeah. bit, it's yeah. still the right thing to do, and that's yeah. what, that's what your dad was yeah. wanting you to know.
2: And that was at the same age. That was kind of that same same time frame 14.
1: No, that was a little younger. Little probably a little younger. I was probably about 11 okay. Yeah.
2: Still that kind of money, you yeah.
1: know, as an 11-year-old, yeah. yeah.
0: That's a lot of money. Yeah, man. It's a lot of money today.
1: Yeah, for, for me, real. 600 bucks. Come on. 14, yeah. I probably would have said, "Hey, you yeah. know, this is a good down payment for my car that I'm going <laughs> to get <laughs> next year or something." But yeah. no. I was
0: too young. Uh fast forward a little bit. Um I started my freshman year Freshman year of high school at Franklin High School at East Stockton. At that time, Franklin was one of the toughest schools in Stockton with a delicate balance of Caucasian, Latino, and African-American students. Fast forward, I I found refuge in something I awkwardly called my best friend. Math. (laughs) Yes. Yes, math made me smile. It was fun. It remained my strongest subject as I maintained good grades throughout four years in high school. You talk about a guy, uh, Mr. Zendejas. Zendejas,
1: Sal Zendejas.
0: And he told you, you were kind of talking to him about, you know, your past and your, your history and your ancestors. And he said, I think you can find who you really are in the history of your ancestors' country. I know I did. Jose, don't ever be ashamed of your culture and its traditions. They are what make up your identity. You should be proud of who you are. Do you know why? No, I answered attentively. Because you belong to two countries and two cultures. And that's a wonderful thing. Not everyone is in, as fortunate as you are. So that's, an, that's a um, kind of a reversal on the pocho thing where they're telling you don't speak Spanish. Like people, like your friends, hey, we're, we, we
1: don't speak Spanish. You were hiding the fact that you spoke Spanish. Yes, yes. And, uh, and I'll tell you, shortly after Sal uh, Sánchez, my teacher, said that, you know, I, I think I was in a junior in high school, and I'm not sure if you talk about the uh, f- the f- homecoming float, but but uh, it, it it falls it falls very good uh, with this story. Was when um, when I was a a, a a junior in high school, um, you know, I started participating in student government. Senior, I became senior, uh, student body president, but. J- junior, uh, I was barely starting, so I was part of the student council, and so I went to the meetings, and we were getting ready for homecoming. And, of course, every class, the, the senior class, the junior class, the sophomore and freshman have a float, right? And they, they have a homecoming float. And I remember ours, we, 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 we wanted to build a float and everything, and um, and they were saying, okay, but we need a, uh, a flatbed and a truck, Uh, Does anyone have a flatbed and truck? And no one had one Uh, because my dad drove a flatbed and a truck, so I knew I had one, right? But I wouldn't say anything because I knew my dad. My dad is not going to lend it to us in the sense of drop it off somewhere where we can work and use it and then— uh he'll go go pick it up once we're done he's not like that he's 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 the type that says oh yeah you guys want it? sure you can use it but you know you guys come here so i can keep my eye on my truck and my flatbed <laughs> so 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 you have to come here and of course we lived in east stockton worst part of stockton and we lived in uh at the time it was a that two bedroom dilapidated rental that we still didn't own yet and um i actually we did own it by then and so we owned it but it was in the worst part of Stockton, and, um, and, and so I was embarrassed to have my classmates come to my house because I figured, you know, surely they live in better houses than this two-bedroom dilapidated uh, piece of junk that we lived in, right? But that was our home, and so I resisted, and we had meeting after meeting, and then it became clear that the very last meeting, they were going to cancel the junior entry for the homecoming float because we didn't have, we didn't have a flatbed or a truck. I finally had to fess up. I said, you know, I have one. And they said, oh, you do? Great. I said, but there's a catch. And I said, what's that? We got to build a float in my house, in, my, in our front yard there at the flatbeds. There, my dad won't let take it anymore. Oh, don't worry, we'll go and what's the address? So I gave him the address, and you know, and building the float. It's after class. They usually start on a Monday because the, f- the thing is on Friday. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so we start on Monday. And, uh, and so people came. And I remember the first day I was kind of like embarrassed. But, you know, they all jumped on the truck. They started working on it. Then all of a sudden my mom starts bringing in burritos, tacos, <laughs> agua fresca. My dad brings out the boom box and puts music. <laughs> my brothers and sisters start helping out. And then the next day, word got out hey, there's good food and music. <laughs> party, <laughs> party, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it got bigger. You know, by Thursday, it was like, you know, it was overflowing and uh, it was great. And, awesome. um, and I remember a, a, a guy, a friend of mine, um, comes to me and, um, and he looks at me and he says, Man, I'm so jealous of you. And I said, jealous of me? And this is a Caucasian guy lived in the North Side of Stockton, good place. Stockton. He had one of those, uh, you know, what Smokey and the Bandit cars. Oh, a Trans Am. Trans Am. Oh, dang. With the eagle. Yeah, he dude. had a, He had a, he, you know, he had barely started driving, and he got a new car, and he said he was jealous of me. And I said, I said, dude, look what you're driving, and you're jealous of me. And he said, yeah. I said, you know, I um. Sure, I have this new car, and I live in North Stockton. I says, but you know, my parents are divorced. I never see my dad. My mom's a nurse; she works long hours. I hardly see her. I always come home to an empty house. And to think you come home to this. I said, this is what I want. Mm-hmm. And that's when I realized that you know, bringing in both parts of my culture to identify who Jose is was the best thing to do. And that's when I stopped being embarrassed of my Mexican heritage. That's when I embraced it. And I said, you know, with lots of pride, yeah, I'm a Mexican-American because I'm able to get the best of both cultures to define who Jose is today. And uh, and so that's, you know, after hearing S- Mr. Sendejas' uh, words, you know, I put it to use and I realized I had this Conclusion that said, hey, it's not bad getting the best things of both cultures. Of course, there's people that get the worst things of both cultures, and Mm -hmm. that that's real bad. Uh, You know, that's my buddies down the street, but 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 you know, that's uh, that's another thing.
2: It's it's all on what you focus on, too, right? Exactly. You know, you you, you focused on those positive aspects. You know, pursued that, took you places. Yeah.
0: Um, You talk about that. You did end up being the like you said, the student body uh, president. Class president, that's pretty cool. You talk about the election in here and stuff like that. Um, Fast forward a little bit. You say, one day I heard news, a news brief on the radio that said Costa Rican Franklin Chang Diaz, the first Latino American astronaut candidate at NASA, makes his dream come true. The news commentator talked in depth about Dr. Chang Diaz's struggles and triumphs in his quest to become an astronaut. Quote, Franklin Chang was born in 1950 in San Jose, Costa Rica. He was sent to the United States after finishing his secondary education with only $50 to his name and without knowing a single word of English. He recounted that all he had was a suitcase full of aspirations, end quote. So there you had a little someone to relate to a
1: little bit. You were looking at him that way? Exactly. Well, I figured he he was uh, opening the road for others. Mm-hmm. I said, you know, once they... Selected the first Hispanic American astronaut. I said, "Well, then, you know that opens the door up for me." <laughs> and uh, and and so so yeah so so he was someone that really kind of put fuel to my added fuel to my fire of wanting to become an astronaut because now I said, mm-hmm. uh, now I know it's possible because he's living proof. And mm-hmm. and I re- it resonates so much because you know he had brown skin like I have. He spoke with an accent like I did, and uh, he came from very humble beginnings just like I did. And I said, well, if he can do it, why can't I? Mm -hmm. And so it empowered me. Uh, You
0: got into a bunch of different universities, get done with high school. Fast forward a little bit, you end up going to the University of the Pacific, which is up in Stockton, had a great engineering program, um, and it would allow you to be at home.
1: Yeah, I saved on room and board. (laughs) And then I was able to work in the fall at the cannery during the night shift. I remember, you know, the first two months of school was always tough because it was August, September. And then as you get more seniority, you go into October, November in the canneries, and then you get laid off. But I I remember, uh, you know, it's tough uh, because you go to work at – and the cannery was only – a block away. So I would walk to the cannery from my house. And I would walk in this big yellow raincoat because I I worked in cleanup from 10 at night to six in the morning. And then uh, I would get home, shower, uh, eat something. And then my classes started at eight o'clock at EOP, finished till about two, three, and then did some homework uh, and then fell asleep about seven and about 9.30, 9.30, get back up and go back to work. On the grind. On the that, yeah. grind. All, but, you know, it was only a short period. like mm-hmm. three months kind of thing. I have, on average, it was about three months. Uh, but, you know, that helped me. The cannery paid pretty well compared to field work. Mm-hmm. So they paid very well. So that, along with the fact that I didn't have to pay room and board, allowed me to go to Pacific and, you know, pay uh, the tuition, uh, my part of the tuition because I got Cal Grant and Pell Grant and th- those type of uh, assistance to get, uh, to help pay for the uh, tuition.
0: I got to cover this one, one section because we talked about it a little bit. Um, you talk about your friends here. Years later after drifting apart, I would find out that he did, this is Carlos, he did indeed not continue his education. He ended up doing low-skilled work and low-paying jobs. Drugs robbed his brother Alberto of his future. They found Alberto's lifeless body in his apartment. and An autopsy revealed that he died of a drug overdose, probably the result of heroin or cocaine use. As for my neighbor Sergio, he too did not have an opportunity to make something of himself. One day years later, as I was getting an award for one of my projects, I received a call from my mother who told me that the neighbors stumbled upon his body, which was hanging from a tree in the park. To my knowledge, no arrests were made in connection with his death. It remains unclear as to whether it was a suicide or a homicide. I truly believe my friends were not the individuals they appeared to be. They were just three little boys who needed role models in their lives to steer them in the right direction. If someone would have made them realize the importance of going to school or infused them with self-confidence, their destinies would have been very different. When I received word of their deaths, I felt impotent wondering perhaps if I could have done something to help them make the right decisions. You know, when you were talking earlier about um, Mrs. Young, or Miss Young. Miss Young. And it's not just educators, you know, that have the opportunity to have a huge impact on people's lives. You know, anybody, if you're listening to this right now, you you can help so many people that you reach out, talk to them, try and show them, show them the right direction. I mean, it's you don't have to be in a in a position of authority to be able to help people and steer them exactly. in the right direction. And it's um, you, you know, know.
1: And, and, and that was the great differentiator between uh, them and I. You look at my parents; they were involved. You know, they didn't know. I mean, they, sure, sure, they didn't go to PTA meetings and n- right. none of that, but they were involved with you know keeping an eye on us, making sure we wouldn't stray and making sure we were doing well in school. Whereas with my friends, you know, one uh, for, for one of them, the one that lives across the street, uh, he, um, you know, his father was never there. Uh, he would only come, he would come home like a day, or two days before the first, wife, Because that was when the welfare check arrived. Mm-hmm. And he would sweet talk his wife, you know, take like 90% of the money, mm-hmm. disappear for the rest of the month, and then give him 10%. Defend for the rest of the month for the whole family, which was terrible. And then uh, on the other side, the two brothers, uh, both the mother and father were alcoholics, and uh, and so it was non you know it was a dysfunctional family on both sides there that that didn't help them. And and so you when you become successful and then you hear what happens to your buddies, you can't you know feel. And, you know, you can't help it, but to feel bad because you say, "Is there anything I could have done to have uh, uh, helped them along the way so they they wouldn't have ended up the way they have ended, you know, ended up?" in, you know, one old deed, another one still selling drugs on the street, and the other one, uh parent suicide. And uh, and you say, you know, you do feel uh, guilty because you say, you know, maybe I could have done something, but you know, who knows. <sighs>
0: Um, you know, speaking of people having names, tell us a little bit about uh, Senora Bello.
1: Oh, Senora Bello, uh-huh. Bello, okay, Bello. Yeah, she's uh, she was a tough cookie. Uh, she started off in um, actually in 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 um, junior high, and then when we went to high school, she actually transferred to the high school. So we got a double dose of her. <laughs> uh, which I don't know if it was good or bad, but the, uh, the first dose I got of her was uh, in junior high. And, uh, and she was the one that uh, basically, remember I told you I started to forget my Spanish and everything. She's the one that sort of turned that around and said, no, you will learn Spanish and you will learn it in a correct Man, you know, and all that stuff. As a matter of fact, I went. I went to Guadalajara. She was a Spanish teacher, so she set up a trip to Mexico, and we went to a blind school and got boarded there, and uh, and would, would spend like two weeks during Easter in 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 Mexico, and uh, and so she she was tough as nails. Uh, you know, she was a tough cookie, tough grader, everything, didn't cut you any slack, and um, and then in high school. Um, she became biology teacher. So then I went to Mexico Baja California twice with her. Again on Easter with the biology kids, and we would do uh, plant taxonomy and uh, marine biology uh, in in Baja. And you know we we would like co- uh, make corners of uh, uh, different quadrants, and we would have to classify every plant in that quadrant. So you get it. Good uh idea of what kind of vegetation existed in the uh, Baja desert kind of thing, and it, we were always sleeping under a tent and stuff like that so it was it was uh it was interesting times there, and again, she was very very tough on us but but you know that's what prepared me for college man because uh, without her toughness, I think I wouldn't have uh, had the- t- the mental toughness to uh, get through physics and chemistry and calculus and all those engineering courses.
0: Yeah, you ran into her as you were starting university. And and one of the things she told you, and this is going back to the book, she said, you're all grown up now, Jose. You're about to turn 18 and embark on, embark on your college career. You know, I was once young in college just like you. I know the challenges you're gonna face. The only thing I ask of you is not to forget who you are and where you come from. Don't allow anything or anyone to deter you from your schoolwork. She she was staying on you. Yeah. Yeah. She was
1: she was a second mother. She was exactly like a second mother. And so she kept an eye on us. Uh
0: you got a cool story in here. I got I got to read this one cuz it I, I was I, I enjoyed it. Um you you're checking into your first, one of these classes. Good morning class. I'm Professor Andres Rodriguez. I will be teaching you physics. Are there any questions? Dr. Rodriguez was a very short man with silvery white hair who always seemed to have an unlit cigar used more like a pacifier in his mouth or his hand. He talked with a very heavy accent. Because of the cigar, I guess he was of Cuban descent. Later I would find out my assumptions to be correct. Will a syllabus be handed out? Asked a female classmate very hesitantly. Syllabus, there's no need for one. The curriculum of this class is going to be something none of you have ever seen before. It's not going to make any sense without me personally guiding you throughout the semester. Let's begin, shall we? I shivered with goosebumps when I heard him speak in what I thought was an unfriendly tone. Looking around the classroom and seeing all the new faces once again brought me back to the same feelings I had when I was in elementary school, when I was trying to figure out what the writing on the chalkboard meant. The only difference now was that the board was plastered with symbols and numbers, not words in a foreign language. I did not know. Just 10 minutes into his lecture, I was beginning to think that there was no way I would ever pass this class. The chalkboard was filling up with one physics formula after another. I might as well have been staring at Egyptian hieroglyphics. The Professor Rodriguez was talking and writing so quickly that I could barely keep up. I just wrote down everything he wrote down as fast as I could without understanding any of it. Any questions, he asked. No one raised a hand. I took a deep breath and as I exhaled, I dared to raise my hand. Professor Rodriguez, I really don't understand anything you just wrote on the board, I told him. Some of my classmates began to laugh, making me feel like an idiot for raising my hands. Professor Rodriguez looked at me, smiled, and asked, what's your name? Jose, I responded. Well, Jose, the reason why you don't understand anything that I wrote is because it's nonsense. It's, it's nonsense, it's a joke, and if you all look closely, you will see that this was a lesson in disguised. In disguise, everyone became silent, embarrassed by both their own ignorance and their fear of not speaking up. They all seemed to wish they had found themselves asking for clarification. (laughs) That's a good trick. You you referred back to someone else here, Dr. Jones, who said, don't ever be left with any doubts or questions. Better to be ignorant for a moment than for life. If you don't understand something, simply ask.
1: That's correct. Good lesson learned right there. Yeah. Well, you know, I figured, you know, uh, and Dr. Jones was a, uh, the director of a program there at UOP, University of Pacific, uh, the Community Involvement Program, which gave scholarships to kids from the local area to attend the university, which is a private university. And, you know, they paid up to like 80% of your tuition. So I remember, um, you know, we had like a two-week orientation before school started and one of the things this is this was a african american tall gentleman dr jones and um and he would always call us you know his kids you know from the program but he would always say hey you need to sit in the front of the class don't sit in the back why get it filtered sit in the front ask questions always do and it says uh and then he would say you know jose um you know, we're giving you a scholarship, right? I said, yeah. I said, but how much are you paying a year? I said, well, I have to still have to come up with about $3,000. He says, okay, get your money's worth. <laughs> and and so that's exactly what I thought of when Dr. Rodriguez was doing all this stuff and I was sitting there in front and writing everything. <laughs> I said, I don't understand none of this scrap. don't understand it. And I said, man, I'm paying three grand. I said, I'm going to ask. I'm, I want my money's worth. So I asked, and I said, I don't understand this. (laughs) And that's when he said, good, I'm glad you don't because you shouldn't. I said, I just want to teach you guys the lessons that because we're going to go through a tough course here. If you guys have any questions, you ask them. So don't assume because it's only going to get worse, he says. It's going to get worse if you let it pile on. You need to understand the basics, so ask questions then he started with his lesson. Yeah.
0: I didn't go to college until I was older the Navy sent me to college when I was 28 years old and I was I would sit right in the front row and if a professor talked about something that I didn't understand I would immediately raise my hand. I don't understand that because I was I was a grown man, you know. I didn't care what the other kids thought. Yeah. I just wanted to make sure I understood what they were putting out. But that's something I learned in the SEAL teams. If you're starting to learn a, a, a tactic or a technique and you're not getting it, and you try and pretend like you get it,
1: it's going to catch you and it's going to bite you. It's going to bite you. It's going to bite you. That same thing being an astronaut. You say, you can't pretend. you (laughs) got to understand because you know what? This little button, it could save you or it could kill you. (laughs) Uh, Fast forward a little bit. You end up with a job
0: opportunity. This was not only a job, it was an opportunity. Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory is a premier research facility dedicated to national defense and is funded through the Department of Energy. It was located just 40 miles from my home allowing me to commute to work while I was making some money too. I could not stop thinking of how I would feel on the first day walking through those doors.
1: So you had this opportunity to get this job at at a lab.
0: Yes. that's a huge opportunity. Yes,
1: yes, it was Premier National Laboratory <laughs> R&D in uh, in defense applications. So,
0: uh, so and, how, what and what year did you do that? Was that was that did you start interning there in, in yes, college? Yes, I,
1: I started interning in 83 and again in 84 and then I got offered a job in 85 career but I went to my uh, master's degree and then I got hired in 87 full time.
0: Um, Fast forward a little bit in May of 1985. At the age of 22, I found myself dressed in a black and orange graduation gown with my standard-issued black cap ready for college graduation. I could hear my mother's applause as I walked across the stage to receive my diploma because it was the loudest. With my degree in hand, I stopped to show her what I'd written on top of my cap before exiting the stage. It read, Hola, Mama. It was a symbol of my gratitude for everything she had done for me for my entire life. I remember clearly how everyone turned to look At her as she rose from her seat, and how her crystalline eyes, which were holding back tears, met mine as she blew me a kiss. Big day. Um, Yeah, very big. You say I wasted no time in starting my career at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in Livermore, California. Um, This is where you decide. Well, (laughs) got to go through the mindset here. I came to the conclusion that for me to flourish and successfully compete in this environment, I needed to obtain a postgraduate degree. This realization coupled with the fact that I could not stop thinking about how I could get into the NASA astronaut program led me to my next big decision in life to attend graduate school. After all, Dr. Franklin Chang Diaz had a doctorate degree and NASA chose him to go into space. So you're checking these boxes. End up going to the University of uh, California at Santa Barbara. And this was the first time you got to go to school where all you had to do was go to school.
1: Exactly. And then the first time away from home, too. Okay. And, uh, and, and so, uh, but, yes, it was the first time I, I had a full-ride scholarship, even paid for my room and board. And the, my only job was to go to school because yeah. every other time when I was an undergraduate, I was in the cannery working in restaurants, <laughs> uh, work-study, tutoring, doing everything. I was always busy. And, uh, and here— the only thing I had to do was go to school. And it was so easy. Luxury. It was luxury. It was yeah. so easy because I said, well, what else? do I? I always felt when I was there, felt so guilty because I said, what else do I need to do? I said, no, you're all caught up.
0: Yeah, That's luxury. I, I had that kind of luxury too. So I went to college. The, like I said, the Navy sent me to college. But the Navy, for some reason, it was an old program. I got commissioned as an officer before I went to college. So then I did two years at a SEAL team. Then they sent me to college. So I was an officer. I didn't have like Johnny Kim, who you know. Yeah. Uh-huh. Johnny Kim, he when he went to college, he had to do ROTC, and g- we went to the same college, University of anybody. He had to go to ROTC and put on his uniform and do whatever the Navy requirements S- were. To do, yeah. Me, I was just just go to college. <laughs> I was the exact same as you, just getting a full pay. I was getting yeah. a paycheck. I actually, yeah, my deal yeah. was even better than yours, I think, because I was getting a full Navy paycheck. Oh yeah. Yeah, yours and was just, I was the highest paid college freshman
1: of all time. <laughs> It was almost. And getting your tuition paid, right? Yeah,
0: and my tuition was fully paid. Yeah, it was ridiculous. That's that's great. But for you, going from where you all your career, you were working at the cannery (laughs) from 10 o'clock at night till 6 in the morning, and now you're just there, just focused on school. Exactly. Luxury. Exactly, it was. (laughs) Awesome. Um, You were kind of making a transition to another level, meanwhile. This happens, going back to the book, Couple Murdered in Stockton. Yeah. News article. The article confirmed that the victims were family members from my father's side. Dumbfounded, I immediately called my parents to inform them of the tragedy, but they already knew they were distraught, understandably so. I started thinking my parents live in a neighborhood similar to the one where my Tio and Dia were just murdered. How could I allow my own parents to continue living in such a place? So you start feeling like you got to do something about your parents. Now, this
1: is where you start getting psychological back on your That's parents. Right. That's right. Because
0: you knew you could just say, hey, I want to move you in with me. Well, they're going to be resistant. Yeah. They're going to be
1: resistant because they're used to the old neighborhood or used to the, you know, the corner supermarket and those type of stuff. And I knew there was going to be resistance. Right. But I wanted to get them out of that neighborhood because I said, you know, same thing that happened to my uncles right. could happen to them. Yep. And of course they were resistant, so go ahead. <laughs> Ooh, you
0: go ahead. What did you do? You played a little psychological warfare on them.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I had I had just bought a house myself because I was working at Livermore. And so I bought my first uh three bedroom, two bath house in North Stockton, nice area. And I was living by myself, of course. And and somehow I wanted to get them to come live with me. And of course, uh they resisted. They said, "No, me. This is our home. This is where we belong. This is." I said, "But yeah, but look what happened to uh, Uncle and Aunt." And they said, "No, no, that's not going to happen to us." And uh, finally, I said, "This, this is what I'm going to do." I said, "I'm going to, I'm going to tell Mom that I really need uh, help with the house cleaning, and uh, and 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 also I'm going to go to the pharmacy." Gonna buy me a few condoms and kind of just kind of hide them where she could find them. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and I know she was gonna clean and she's gonna find them. She's probably not gonna say anything to me about them, but I know she's gonna have a conversation with dad. And and, and the conversation I figured I kind of figured I said she's gonna say, hey, we have to move <laughs> over there and make sure our kid doesn't make a mistake. Look what I found. This and that. <laughs> and there's a good Catholic. You know, parents old fashioned, so uh, so 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 it worked, it worked to the T. It worked. The next thing I know is they're packing their stuff and they're moving over. So, so yes, I did use a little bit of psychology to get them over there, and we've never talked about it since then. Mm -hmm. She hasn't mentioned it, I've never mentioned it, and uh, it just uh, worked, yeah, it's just worked, it just worked. worked.
0: Mm -hmm. Um fast forward a little bit 1991 you lost your your grandfather yes um, and that was i mean your your family was close even though you even though you spent less and less time in mexico as you got older you still i mean it was this was like a huge this was a huge, sure. huge huge
1: impact for you a huge loss yes because i grew up um as a kid i would spend 3 months over there in their house with them growing up with them and, you know my parents were there my siblings were there cousins would come over and uh but my grandfather and uh and grandmother were there and so you know they were like the the matriarch and patriarch of the family kind of thing and and so uh it was a big loss when 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 we lost them yeah cuz then well your abuela then shortly thereafter
0: you say this god must not have wanted to experience such grief for too long months after my grandfather's death death her Alzheimer's rapidly accelerated and robbed her of her last memory. It was not long before she reunited with her soulmate. That's correct. And then you lost your your mother's mother as well. Right. And all this happened in a pretty short period sure, of time.
1: Sure, a period of about three years, I lost the, all three of them. My, my grandfather on my uh, mother's side, uh, he passed away of tuberculosis when I was about two or three years. So... He got to know me, I don't remember him, but he got to know who i was but uh but yeah, in the short span of those about three years, we lost all all three uh grandparents
0: now, as this is happening you're you're still at working at this lab, and while that's going on december eighth nineteen ninety one the Soviet Union falls apart yes which it has effects I mean global effects yeah. obviously this was a superpower This was the you know the, the fall of communism and you say this in the book It was not long after the fall of the Soviet Union that ex- the expensive Star Wars defense programs Such as our own x-ray laser program came up on the congressional budgets chopping block. Yes so you were working you were working on things that were used for defense.
1: Yes, uh, the the project I um, I had work when when I got hired as a career employee because I had worked at the lab already. But when I got hired as a career employee, they gave me a um, choice of about three projects. They had um, they had a life extension program where they extended the life of uh, nuclear warheads, and so you worked on 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 how to. Um, evaluate them and certify them so they can stay longer on the shelf and we call them good in good operating order. That was one project. The other one was working in the National Ignition Facility, NIF, where it's nuclear fusion, 192 x-ray beams creating nuclear fusion to create energy, which was pretty interesting. But the third one was uh, developing an X-ray laser. This is a nuclear-pumped X-ray laser, where you have a nuclear event, and you have a beam of focused X-rays that would um, it would be up deployed up in space that would um, that would be pointed to any uh, oncoming Soviet missiles in the event of a first strike by the Russians. When those missiles go exothermic up in space. You detonate this device, you have high-energy X-ray particles that uh, take out the electronics package, and then they float off harmlessly. And so, so out of all these three three projects, mm-hmm. um, that's the one that interests me because we had to put it up in space. Mm-hmm. So I figured. You know, mm, yeah. <laughs> i got to learn how to put hardware up in space. I think NASA would be interested in this. Not to
0: mention working on a nuclear x-ray laser <laughs> <Yeah>. beam. <It's laughs> exactly, cool. exactly.
1: And, and we, would, we would do our testing in Nevada test site. This is when underground nuclear testing was allowed. And, you know, whenever they did any nuclear event, um, you know, the labs, uh, they would give you real estate. You, they would have about 30 p- experiments in a nuclear event. So they had a whole team that just dedicated to preparing for a nuclear event. And then they say, okay, this is your real estate. And you would go down there and put your package. In our case, it's the the X-ray itself right next to the bomb. And then a bunch of diagnostics, uh, fiber optics, so that when it happens, we're able to measure the flux, how strong those X-rays are and how, you know, the density of it and all that. So, so we can basically measure its performance and that's what we were doing and uh and so to me it was great it was uh and it, and you know they would throw money at it so money was never an issue in right. terms of I need this I need that and we would uh so it was fun times until the uh Soviet Union collapsed and then Uh, justification for grandiose projects and justifiably so uh, went away and so that's why they cancelled it. Yeah you know uh, you you described this well when you're talking about
0: how much money you were able to utilize you say I credit the advances in defense shield projects such as our own x-ray laser as leading to the downfall of the former Soviet Union. In short Reagan's strategy, that's Ronald Reagan, Reagan's strategy worked. My own conclusion leads me to believe that in an effort to keep up with the Joneses the Soviet Union dedicated the bulk of its budget to similar programs while paying less attention to their economy and internal infrastructure. As a result, the USSR created the perfect social and economic storm that led to unrest and its eventual downfall.
1: That's correct.
0: Fast forward a little bit. One question started to linger in my mind was, how could we utilize to our advantage the insight gathered from the work on the X-ray laser? My boss and mentor, Clint Logan, could not have agreed more. Clint decided that mammography was the best way to match both our skills and the tools we had developed. That's a big leap. We we also had personal motives for improving mammography. The wife of our leader in the X-ray laser program had been diagnosed with breast cancer, and I had just lost a young friend to the disease. On many occasions, I served as an interpreter for my 28-year-old friend and her husband as she underwent treatment for her cancer. I was astonished to learn that eventually one in eight women in the United States acquires this horrible disease. So you guys figured out that some of the technology that you had used or you had invented could actually be used
1: in a positive way for helping detect uh, breast cancer. That's correct. Um, The the area I was in charge of for the x-ray laser was evaluating the man-made materials called aerogels. that, that were used as pads for the x-ray laser and the way i evaluated them was uh, i would x-ray them and um, and create images to see how homogeneous this man-made material was so that so that you could yeah. match it because uh it, you you had to put about 8 8 of these type of bricks on both sides and you got to match the interfaces else they lose Energy uh, as it transfers from one interface to the other, and the way I did it was I I did X-ray imaging, but then I also started uh, to fool around with how X-rays interact with matter, and I and I uh, started writing some code uh, called uh, Monte Carlo 3D uh, uh, code uh, analysis that that models how the X-rays uh, react with with, with matter because some X-rays go through. Some get completely absorbed, and some collide with material and create lower-energy x-rays, and that's scatter, which is noise in the image. And so I modeled all that, and when, when the, when the um, project got canceled, this was a, like a neat little tool. And so Clint, my boss, and I felt like we had an answer, but we didn't know what the question was. Mm-hmm. And then when uh, all of a sudden we got sensitized to breast cancer, and we said, I wonder if we can redesign uh, the uh, mammography machines that create these images because uh, they use film uh, and they develop the film, and then the doctors look at it at a light table. Well, we created a electronic detector, and we designed the X-ray tube to be more optimal mm-hmm. for human tissue uh, diagnosis. And, uh, and we were able to create the f- what's called the first full-field digital mammography system for earlier detection of cancer. Earlier because we demonstrated that our images had much more information content than the film screen images. And then we opened up a whole new area of study called computer-aided diagnosis where we were able to uh, basically um, point out possible early precursors to breast cancer, which are microcalcification, stellate, and circumscribed lesions, asymmetric glandular distortion, all those type of things that will catch the eye of a radiologist and say, hey, maybe we should look here. Mm-hmm. And and so we put it in a smart expert system so that the uh, you not only acquire the images, but then you would put it in a super sensitive mode. And then outline the areas where the radiologist should focus on and check out and see if it if it's worth uh, going in for a biopsy or doing something else mm-hmm. to the patient. So we were pretty proud. I always tell people, you know, when when they ask me, what's your proudest professional moment? A lot of people expect me to say, well, you know, I flew on Space Shuttle Discovery and went up into Space International Space Station and all that kind of stuff. I was a flight engineer. But that's not it. It's, it's the fact that, you know, this device that we created at Lawrence Livermore Lab, which was a nuclear defense lab, yet we repurposed that technology for something, uh, you know, that could work here uh, for for, for the civilians, was developing an X-ray mammography system that detects cancer at earlier stages. Everybody knows that if you detect cancer at an earlier stage, the greater probability of the patient uh, to be saved uh, occurs. And so... I'm convinced that this device has saved hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of lives since its inception back in 97,
3: 98.
1: <clears throat> yeah, that's. I mean, that's awesome. We could just end there,
0: I guess, right? <laughs> we could just end there, but the story goes on a little it bit. It does. In early 1992, when I was 29 years old, I called the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, NASA, to ask about the requirements to become an astronaut. I was hoping to make myself make. I was hoping to make what was a far-fetched dream for many a reality for myself. Here were were the requirements: career in a technical field or medicine. Check five years experience. Check highly highly desirable. Graduate des- degree. Check. Nothing prevented me from applying since I met all their basic requirements. Hence, I decided to contact NASA. Much to my surprise, the main operator put me in contact with Astronaut Selection Office. As part of the first step in the application process, the Astronaut Selection Office sent me a 12-page application. I promptly filled it out and mailed it back to NASA. Fast forward a little bit. I finally received a letter in the mail four months after having received the acknowledgement of my application. It read, thank you for your interest in NASA. At the moment, there are many qualified applicants applying for astronaut positions with NASA. Unfortunately, we cannot invite you to an interview for this selection cycle. We encourage you to continue applying for future future selection cycles. So denied. The first of many. Yeah, you got denied. I've I, well, a chunk here I gotta bring I gotta bring Adela into the story, yes, my your wife. wife um, the, and you go through a, a, a really cool story about how you met, how you got together. It's in the book. It's great. <laughs> um, fast forward a little bit past that. It's Adela and I dated for more than two years before we decided to get married. We were not in any rush to tie the knot, even though we knew we were meant to be together. Six months after we got engaged, we exchanged vows in a traditional Catholic ceremony in Lodi, California at St. Anne's Catholic Church. On the way to pick up Adela, the limousine got lost and caused her to arrive 45 minutes late to the wedding. (laughs) Talk about a nervous groom. I was starting to fear she'd changed her mind.
1: (laughs) Um, (laughs) True story. You were sweating it, huh? (laughs) I was sweating bullets. Maybe she's bailing on you. Exactly.
0: Uh Fast forward a little bit, another year passed. So once again, I filled out the 12-page application and waited for an answer. Then after four months of waiting to hear whether or not I had been accepted, I received another rejection letter with the words to the effect of, don't call us, we'll call you. This process of applying and being rejected repeated itself every year while I continued working at the laboratory. Whenever I received a rejection letter from NASA, I would remind myself that there is more than just one star and one goal in life. I had no other choice but to move forward with my life. Adelita's positive influence helped me develop a healthy balance between work and family. Thus, I could safely avoid being consumed with the notion of trying to become an astronaut. She helped me cope with NASA's rejections while encouraging me to sustain my dream. I still wanted to become an astronaut but I also wanted to live and enjoy my life on my way to becoming one. A little year, a little over a year and a half into our marriage, Adela announced that she was pregnant with our first child. We experienced our first pregnancy with all the excitement of first-time parents and all the nerves too. The reason I wanted to highlight that part, obviously having a baby that's awesome, but also you're going to pursue this dream, you're getting rejected from this dream, but you know you you use this term here that there's more than one star and more than one goal in life. So even though you had this goal of becoming an astronaut, you couldn't make that the be all
1: end all. I couldn't let it consume me. Right. You know, I, I used it as a motivator, as a driving force, but I didn't want it to consume my life. You know, I wanted to enjoy life mm-hmm. and I and I wanted to uh, to say, look, it's okay if you don't reach your goal, uh, because as long as you give it your best, you know it's like my father would always say, say, hey, you know, shoot, shoot for the stars, you know. But, you know, the worst that can happen is you're going to be on top of the world, you mm-hmm. know. And uh, and so that's that, yeah. that's that that's that, that's what I I was doing. I said, you know, it the the fact that I was driven to become an astronaut and was sort of navigating my career in sort in in that sort of way. You know, had, it had my career on an upward trajectory. So it wasn't yeah. like they were competing priorities. Yeah, well, it's like your son. They it. Y- it's like your yourself. son.
0: You, he wants to be an astronaut. Great. Even if he doesn't get it, he's got his dang PhD
1: and exactly. a couple master's
0: degrees. Yeah. He's got the, all these doors open. To
1: exactly. Him. Exactly.
0: But that's an important thing for people to remember. Like, you know, it's great to have that big goal. But even if you don't make that goal, look at where you got to.
1: Exactly. And And sometimes you are the one that changes that. And I'll go. It's not the fact that you can't get there. Sometimes the fact that you prepare yourself a certain way opens up the doors to other opportunities that you weren't even aware of. But all of a sudden, hey, I can do this now. Go ahead and do it. If that's that's what you want to do, go ahead and do it. It's okay to change midway as long as you're going up. (laughs) Uh, Fast forward a little bit during
0: Adela's pregnancy with our second child. I was traveling extensively to the former Soviet Union for Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in the U.S. Department of Energy. As luck would have it, I would find found out while I was still in Siberia that Adela <laughs> had gone into labor and given birth to our baby girl. That's right. <laughs> I'll fast forward a little bit. During one of my trips to Russia, I came to an important conclusion. Nothing in life happens or is accomplished purely by chance. Goals and dreams are realized through planning, perseverance, and hard work. As I was leaning my head against the window of the state-owned car that was taking us to our hotel, I thought of how my childhood dream had evolved with my graduation from college and my work at one of the most prestigious laboratories in the United States and the world. It was because I worked tirelessly that I could see my transformative effect that my dream had on shaping each outcome in my life. I also focused on bettering my physical strength and health because astronauts are susceptible to rigorous training and medical exams before blasting off into space. I ran a marathon almost every year I applied to NASA with the exception of the year that I was finally selected to become a member of the astronaut class. Little did I know at the time I began this routine that it would mean I would end up running 11 marathons. Additionally, I took up flying lessons at the Tracy Municipal Airport and obtained my SCUBA certification through the laboratories scuba diving club. These were skills I suspected and later confirmed were indispensable to have for an astronaut. I learned many things during the time I spent enhancing my skill sets, but above all, I learned that patience really is a virtue. It is simply the best tool to have in one's toolbox when learning something new. So you're doing everything you can. Learning to fly, learning to scuba dive, getting in awesome shape, running marathons.
1: Yeah, and I have to, you know, I I gotta give more more credit to my wife, Adelita, mm-hmm. because um, I remember, um, you know, once once the um, I got rejected uh, the sixth time and I had I had um, gotten the rejection letter and I even scrunched it up and kind of I was in the bathroom uh, shaving when I got it and opened it. And I threw it in the garbage can, and I missed the can. Ooh. It fell on the floor, and you know I was I was so pissed off. I didn't, Rage. Even, I, I didn't <laughs> even pick it up. I didn't even pick it up. I said, uh, uh, heck with it, yeah." And uh, and my wife, I guess, was cleaning up that day, and she saw the piece of paper. Had it landed in the garbage can, she wouldn't have picked it up and opened it. But it was on the floor, so she said, "Oh, what's this?" And she sees that it's another rejection letter, and she sees it scrunched up. So she's putting two and two. To, she's a pretty bright girl. Mm-hmm. So, so she she's knows I'm giving up. And, uh, and, and so she goes and she shows me the, the letter. She says, what's this? I said, you know, you know they keep saying that over 12,000 people apply for only 10, 12 positions. I said, "And man, they've rejected me. This is the sixth time they've rejected me. I said, I think I'm going to give up. I said, "This, this uh, enough's enough." I said, "Look, I got my graduate degree. I'm working at the lab and all that." And she says, "So you're gonna settle for that? Is that what you're gonna settle no, for?" She got you. And she not only said that, <laughs> but then she said, "You're gonna settle for that and you're a quitter." That's what got me. And she yeah. said, "I'm a quitter." I said, "No, I'm not a quitter." I said, "Look, you're giving up." And uh, and she and she looked at me and she says, "You know, you better think about this." Uh, because I know you, she says, if you give up, you're always going to wonder, what if? What if I had put, on that, put in that seventh, eighth, or ninth application? And that's going to gnaw you from the inside, mm-hmm. and you're going to grow to be a bitter old man. And I don't want to be married to a bitter old man, so you better think about this. And that's when she got me thinking. I said, you know, she's She's right. And so what I did, what I did was that's when I started doing the things that you just mentioned there. What I did was I, I, um, I, I sat down and I asked myself a fundamental question. I said, what do these guys have that are getting selected that I don't have? And that's when I uh, noticed that, well, they have the same education. They're about the same age, similar experience. But then I took a deeper dive and that's when I found out that they were all pilots. Mm. So that's when I invested in my sauce. I'm gonna become a pilot. And then another year I found out that they were all scuba diver rated. So man, I would drive from Stockton to Monterey, (laughs) California. Every weekend I got basic, I got advanced, I got scuba rescue, master certified. I wanna make sure NASA knew I knew how to scuba dive. So I got those under my belt. And then the opportunity you know, came full circle. You said I was in Siberia. The opportunity came full circle uh, to work with the Russians. Remember, before I was working against the Russians, protect us against the Russians. Now <laughs> that the Soviet Union broke up, they were asking for help to take control of their nuclear stockpile, the newly formed Russian Federation and uh and no one wanted to go and help the Russians because from the labs because it was tough duty. Mm-hmm. You know you had to travel five, six times a year, three weeks at a time and to Siberia to Siberia <laughs> of all places. you know you think you take that thirteen hour trip to Moscow from New York. this is after taking a five hour trip to uh, to from from San Francisco to New York. Mm-hmm. then you take that thirteen hour to Moscow. you think you're there you still got another six and a half hour flight into Siberia, you know? <laughs> Talk about being in the middle of nowhere. And, and um, no one wanted to do it, but man, I raised my hand, and I told my boss, put me in, coach, I'll go. I said, uh, um, and I said, but there's one, only one condition I put. He said, what's that? He said, well, um, I want a one-on-one Russian language instructor because I want to learn Russian. 'Cause if I'm gonna be doing this for a long time, I think I should know the language. He said, Yeah, we gotta continue education, budget, you knock yourself out. So I so I did that and I didn't do it because I wanted to get to know Siberia in the middle of winter <laughs> but I did it because I had read in the newspaper that the US and Russia were gonna start working in a space program together. And so I kinda of put two and two together and I said, Hey, we're gonna be working with the Russians up in space so this is my differentiator. This is what's going to differentiate me from the 10,000 other at 12,000 other applicants is that n- how many are going to be able to say they go to Russia, they work with the Russians they speak <laughs> you know, <not> <laughs> Russian you know those type of things. And so that's what when finally things got going and it all all thanks to you know Adelita's prodding of me and and you know and and and, and getting to my pride and saying, hey, don't be a quitter kind of thing. <laughs> uh,
0: meanwhile, it's not only is she working psychological warfare on you, yeah. she's uh, a little more after, this is back to the book, a little more after our second child, Karina, joined our family. My wife and I found out we'd be once again bring a life into the world. And, and then halfway through my drive, fast forward, halfway through my drive to the hospital, I received a call from my mother telling me to slow down and drive carefully as the new baby and its mother were doing fine. <laughs> Missed missed another birth. Yeah, (sighs) Believe me, I never hear the end of it, especially from the kids. Uh, My family and I began to prepare to move to Washington, so you got a job offer up in Washington. It's the same job
1: from the lab, but working at DOE headquarters, Department of Energy headquarters.
0: I started thinking about the years uh, NASA denied my admission into their training program. 1992, 1993, 1994, 1995, 1996, 1997. Um, Right before we left for Washington to start my my two year assignment, NASA finally called offering me the invitation I've been waiting for my entire life. The person on the phone informed me that Out of more than 4,000 applicants, only 300 were selected for a closer look at their applications. Out of those 300 candidates, only 100 were selected to continue on to the final round of the selection process. And I was one of them. We, the finalists, were placed in a conference room where... The astronaut selection manager, Dwayne Ross, explained what we would be doing during our week-long stay. He informed us that we were the third group of 20 candidates and that two more groups would be visiting the Johnson Space Center in the coming weeks. The purpose of our extensive exams was to help determine whether we met the medical requirements for a flight assignment. Of the 100 finalists interviewed, only 10 to 18 would be selected to become astronauts. So this time you made it little closer little closer yes. little closer down yes. to the final hundred exactly from the thousands to a hundred and they're doing medical exams to you are you doing any testing like uh, physical testing
1: yeah yes yes they do everything from uh, from physical testing to uh, psychological testing aptitude testing and then uh, and then they culminate everything with a hour-long interview with the whole selection committee
0: this I was thinking this has to be the most highly screened job in the world. It's one of them. I can't imagine there's – I mean, I guess maybe the president of the United States, although that's questionable. Yeah, (laughs) because they get elected. (laughs) Yeah, they're getting elected. Yeah, I I can't imagine a more highly screened job than being an astronaut. I mean, just just the course – and, again, there's a lot of good details you put in the book about this. Buy the book – you talk about some of the, the stories of the other 19 individuals were truly amazing. Some were military test pilots, other were helicopter pilots, still others were medical doctors, while the rest were engineers and scientists. Um, eventually Dwayne Ross called and gave me the news. Jose, thank you for your interest in our program. Unfortunately, you are not selected in this interview cycle. We encourage you to continue so applying. So As we will be selecting future classes. But wait, there's more. Dwayne Ross continued the phone conversation and said, Jose, if you're interested, we would like to offer you a position as an engineer here at NASA, Johnson Space Center. However, this does not guarantee that you will be interviewed, let alone selected, during the next election cycle. If you are interested in applying to become an astronaut, we suggest you get more operations experience, and we believe you can gain this type of experience and knowledge here at NASA. So they gave you a job offer, which I was surprised when I read this, because you didn't take it.
1: Exactly. Explain why you didn't take it. I did not take it because uh, I had just arrived to Washington, D.C. on my change of station assignment from Lawrence Livermore Lab. The lab had spent about $25,000 moving my family and I. We uh, had a house rented and everything. Uh, lease signed with, Mm -hmm. uh, and the job was paying for it, but I was working at DOE headquarters. Um, that, that down in, uh, in in downtown Washington D.C. and I had a commitment for two years, and I couldn't, in good conscience, you know, after being there a couple of months, say, "Well, you know, I changed my mind. Thanks for spending that twenty-five k. Uh, I'm going to Houston now." I didn't want to burn any mm-hmm. bridges, or I well, not not that it was burning bridges, but more than it wasn't the right thing to do. You know, I had made a commitment, and uh, and I wanted to uh, fulfill it, so I I gave. Uh, Dwayne Ross a call and I told him that I respectfully uh, have to decline the offer but I gave him my story I told right. him, this is this is why I, I, I feel I cannot do it and uh, and he understood uh, you know I figured he I'm never going to hear from him again yep. because uh, I turned him down yep. but uh, lo and behold the following a you know, couple of years they they call again.
0: 1992 once again renewed my application by now I felt I could fill it out with my eyes closed <laughs> <laughs> for the second time. I was one of the hundred last 100 finalists, just like the time before these lucky 100 were inviting groups of 20 to spend a week, go through a series of medical and psychological exams, interviews, and tours of the various training facilities. When NASA decides to let the 100 individuals know whether they've been selected or not, the calls to all 100 people occur within the span of a few hours. It was rumored that if a candidate picked up the phone and the Johnson Space Center director, who was George Abbey at the time, was on the other end, it would be good news. However, if it was the astronaut selection manager, Dwayne Ross, or any other interview panel member, one could almost guarantee it would be a thanks but try again type of call. True to the rumor, when I received the call from Dwayne, it was to tell me that I had been seriously considered, but it was not my year. He then went on to suggest that again, I consider an engineering position at Johnson Space Center. So then you go and talk to your wife, Adelita. (laughs) <laughs> you say, may I talk to you for a moment? She said, "Of course." Something wrong? He said, "I want to talk to you about something really important. I have thought about the whole situation with NASA a lot, but before we finalize our decision, I want to confirm something with you. We are getting ready to head back to California, and I'm probably going to get a promotion and a nice raise when I report back to work at the laboratory. That said, I think it is best job. I think it's best for me to turn down the job offer with NASA because they offered you another job. Yes, Houston is hot and muggy. Anyways, we'll have less money to spend and." Adelaide interrupted me, "Honey, if moving to Houston and working for NASA as an engineer is what it will take to for you to make your dream come true, then we'll move to Houston in a heartbeat. Boom. Yeah, and that was the deal. Yeah. So now you, now you accept the job, um, at NASA as an engineer,
1: as an engineer, not as an astronaut. No, no. I mean, it's still really cool. Yeah, I'm I'm in engineering. Yeah, uh, and low man on the totem pole.
0: Um." On January 21, 2003, we welcomed our fifth child, second baby boy into the world. A few days earlier, on January 16, 2003, at 9:39 a.m., the Space Shuttle Columbia took off for its scheduled mission with seven astronauts on board. Columbia was scheduled to land back on Earth on February 1, 2003, at 7:15 a.m. The orbital maneuvering system engines were turned on for a deorbit burn. This burn allows the atmosphere to capture the space shuttle Columbia and thus begin its re-entry to Earth. Within minutes, the temperature sensor on the left wing's brakes began to show an increase in temperature. It was the first serious indication that something was wrong. At 7:59 a.m., the last words from the Space Shuttle Columbia were transmitted. Understood. Uh but 3 minutes later Columbia broke apart, raining a field of debris across the northwest parts of Texas and Louisiana <clears throat> you use a term in here um, it's it's normalization of deviation and I, and I started thinking about that term and what it means and how how it obviously impacted this horrible incident with losing the space shuttle Columbia. But it seems like something that we, a mistake that we, something that we can do in our own lives, this normalization yeah. of deviation. Can you talk about that a little bit? What caused the accident and what sure. how that idea
1: of normalization of deviation played into it? Sure. Well, but by that time, I had been there for three years at NASA and I worked myself up to branch chief of the materials and processes branch. And this is the engineering branch that does the um, failure analysis uh, and finds out root causes of failures of materials and And so when the uh, space shuttle disintegrated up in Northwest Texas, Louisiana, um, you know my group was one of the first groups that were out there picking up the pieces. Uh, we were the ones that put the hangar in Florida and outlined the shuttle and brought every piece and forensic evidence and put it all together and did the testing uh, in terms of the materials to uh, find out where the breach occurred. And once we were pretty certain that that's where the breach occurred, which is on the left wing leading edge, which is a uh, reinforced carbon-carbon substrate, hard substrate, uh, we we went to Southwest Research in San Antonio and we, built a full-size wing of the shuttle. And then um, we looked at the image analysis and saw pieces of foam that fell from the tank uh, insulation, that big orange tank, yeah. center tank, that uh, that fell and hit the, the left wing leading edge. We found out, we calculated the speed, the size of it, and uh, we replicated that experiment at Southwest Research uh, through a air gun fired that those pieces of foam to the wing leading edge and recreated basically the the cracks that occurred because that that's the material that helps uh, on reentry you you're up to about 2700 degrees um, and you know um, the aluminum structure inside it's aluminum melts at about nine, 900 degrees or so yeah. so if there's a crack in there it's going to get in there and it's going to uh, affect the structural integrity of the wing, and that's what caused it to snap and create that catastrophic failure. And pieces all over uh, northwest Texas uh, occurred. And and, and so um, so during all this time, you know, the um, the president uh, had the Columbia Accident Investigation Board or uh, board uh, formed. And since I was the the branch chief, I gave a lot of briefings of the findings. Uh, you know, there's a whole teams, hundreds of hundreds of people that contributed. Certainly not me, myself, but I, I was one of the spokespeople in terms of telling the science part of it, uh, the results of how we, what we measured and all that. And 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 so I got a lot of face time with a lot of people at NASA, and they ended up, you know, they started. Looking at me and trusting me and all that 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 uh you know we came up with the with the story of how what was the root cause of the failure, which is of course the piece of foam that I did and um but shortly thereafter, the following year they have a selection um a selection of astronauts and I'm again one of the finalists and this time, when I sit down across the eighteen people that are there, you know I know more than half of them through this accident investigation board. Uh, Franklin Chang Diaz is sitting there. Mm-hmm. He's one of the guys. So it's kind of like I come home to family now. Before it was a complete set of strangers, and now everybody knew me. I knew them, and I think my work spoke for itself, and, uh, and I think that's what finally did it. But unfortunately, you know, we had to lose a space shuttle for that to occur. I mean, then it's kind of like a bittersweet moment for me.
0: With the normalization of deviation, it, 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 explain that that yes. term. It's like where something goes a little bit wrong, and you go, you know what? It's not.
1: It's not that big of a deal. It's yes. like a
0: normalization of of a vicious. Yes.
1: Yes. Well, what happened was um, in 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 that sense, we've had debris fall off the tank in the past, um, and my, our engineers would cry wolf. They would say, "Hey, something happened here," and we don't know what's going to happen on reentry, and you know they would do that three or four times, and you did see pieces, but it didn't hit anything, and so everybody. So uh, so wait, so they weren't really crying wolf; they were actually saying this could cause a problem, yes.
0: but nothing ever bad happened. Exactly, so. Ex-
1: nothing ever bad happened, but 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 the fact is, the fact is that when they cried wolf, when it really did happen because they have had normalized mm-hmm. that occurrence, then the powers to be didn't put enough weight behind it to say, right. let's stop and let's go out, do an EVA, and let's inspect the wing leading edge where it hit. Because that should have been the proper response. Right. all right, and, uh, and that didn't happen. And so that's why I call it normalization mm-hmm. of deviation.
0: Yeah, and it seems like, uh, well, the way I thought about that after reading it was thinking about just us as human beings in our lives. And we make a little mistake, but we get away with it. Right. And then you may, or you go, you do something that you know you shouldn't do, but you get away with it. You don't, you know, you go and eat a donut. Well, you know, it's you just one donut. It, yeah. Then you look up in a month and you've had a bunch of donuts and all of a sudden you got a problem.
3: And
1: You got
0: five pounds on you. Right. <laughs> so we got to be careful of that, yeah. that idea. Um, what, what discipline. A, yeah. What a travesty that was. Um to get to that point you were just talking about in the fall of 2003, the selection process for the next wave of hopeful astronauts opened once again. I turned my updated application. The fact that I work for NASA did not guarantee my acceptance and they made sure I understood that when I s- accepted the job at NASA in 2001. Working at this is this is a beautiful point. Although I was anxious for the selection process to begin, I can honestly say I was content and at peace with where I was in life. If I was not selected to travel into space, I would accept that since I was happy working with NASA. Working at NASA made me realize that sp- space flight involves tens of thousands of people and that every single person is in, as important to the success of the mission as the seven crew members aboard the space shuttle. So you realized that and
1: that was yes. a... Yeah, I worked in the trenches with everybody, and so I had the opportunity to appreciate what um, the dedication of everybody. Because you know, when I went to work there, you know, I took a ten percent pay cut from Lawrence Livermore Lab because I made too much money at the lab. So, so uh, you know, that that was one part of my hesitation of accepting the job. That my wife convinced me and said, "Hey, don't worry about it. We'll we'll make it happen." And and so. So so, so so, from that perspective, you know, that's the, 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 the uh, point I'm getting at, is that the people that work there can make more money elsewhere, mm-hmm. but they love their job, right. and they're doing everything possible. And it only took me, uh, you know, when I, when I was part of the whole process of the accident investigation, and I saw the dedication of everybody, and then, uh, previous to that, when we were preparing for launches, I saw the dedication of the people during their, their normal activities. And so a lot of people always told me when I got selected in uh, 2004, they said, are you crazy? I said, the space shuttle just disintegrated uh, last year, and you just got selected. Aren't you afraid? And I said, no. I said, because I know these people. I know there's you know, it's, it's tens of thousands that we depend on, but I know they're here because they want to be here you know, they're going to dot their I's and cross their T's because these are dedicated folks. I mean, I had firsthand working with them in the trenches, uh, and I know their dedication. So I was a peace of mind when I jumped into my space I, I shuttle. Was, I was more than confident things were going to turn out good. Uh
0: When going going fast forward a little bit when the whole interview process ended I along with 99 other aspiring individuals had nothing to do but wait about four months later I received a telephone call while working in my office frankly I was prepared for the response that I knew all too well however this particular call did not come from the center director or the astronaut selection manager Dwayne Ross. It came from a senior manager, Colonel Bob Cabana, who was in charge of the flight crew operations directorate and who was an astronaut himself. I knew that if the center director was calling, it was sure to be good news. When somebody on the recommendation board like Bob was calling, I really did not know what to think. I was puzzled. He started the conversation with the usual salutations and then went on to ask if I thought I was replaceable as head of the materials and process branch. My response was genuine when I told him that I thought everyone was replaceable and that all along I had taken upon myself the responsibility to mentor and train folks to be ready to take my place. Good, he said. How would you like to come work for the astronaut office? I quickly realized I had been accepted. My whole body went numb. The second I heard the good news, I did not know how I was going to be able to hold the telephone without dropping it. A nervous laugh escaped my lips, but no words came out as I listened to Bob continue speaking. Now, Jose, you cannot tell anybody beyond your immediate family about this because it will be announced at a press conference on May 6th at NASA headquarters in Washington, D.C., Warned to the voice at the other end of the line. I agreed, said goodbye, and hung up. I did not tell anyone anything. I still had four hours before I could go home from work, and I could not think of anything else but telling my beautiful wife, Adelita. She had to be the first to hear the good news, followed by my kids and then my parents. The 10-minute drive home seemed to last an eternity. Adelita, Adelita, guess what? Our opportunity has come. Finally, I got accepted. I'm going to be an astronaut. There it is. Yeah. How many so how many total times did you apply? Uh, it was the 12th time the 12th time. Yeah 11 straight years of rejection yeah, exactly and the 12th time there you are 12 times the charm <laughs> uh, NASA press conference took place I still had to keep the big news a secret from almost everyone at 11 a.m. My fellow astronauts and I were brought face-to-face with the press We were all nervous and careful of our every step as we walk single file line just like my siblings and I had when we entered the house after coming home from school. When the cameras and microphones were directed at us, I remember thinking to myself, I'm an astronaut, not a famous movie star. My palms were sweaty and there was nothing I could do about it. We were introduced one by one, Satcher, Cassidy, Arnold, Dutton, and Hernandez. And Cassidy's a SEAL, and he was in your group, huh? Yes, he was, my <laughs> classmate, good friend of mine. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Um, Our first big training assignment involved traveling to the Naval Air Station in Pensacola, Florida. Once there, we spent six weeks going to ground school, being taught water survival techniques, learning how to co-pilot the T-34 airplanes. Ground school involved not only learning the basic principles of flight, but also putting those principles to work in high fidelity flight simulators. Probably the most interesting activity during the six week training program was the one where we went on submersible device that simulated the fuselage of a helicopter. This device is actually known as the HELO Dunker. Yeah. So you when you get picked up when you get picked up for the program, you're still not an astronaut. You have to make it through how long is that training program?
1: Two years. It's astronaut candidate program. It's two years. You go through a lot of academics. Uh, you go through the learning the systems of the space shuttle. Eighteen, you know, a typical airline has about eight or nine subsystems. An airline plane, a space shuttle has 18, and you have to learn each one of them. Uh, You have written tests on each one of them. Then you got single system trainers, so you master each one of them. Then you got multi system trainers where they start cross pollinating the systems and how one system affects the other. And then you've got the high fidelity motion based simulator. Where then a pickup crew of four of you are in the cockpit, mm. and they throw everything but the kitchen sink at you, and you've got to, uh, you know, it's either an ascent run, or it's an orbit operations, or it's a landing, and but they'll fail things for you, and you got to figure it out, and you got to pass all that. Every Friday there's a test. Uh, it's like being in finals week for two continuous years. I mean, pretty intense. Yeah. But I mean, I'm sure it's similar to like for SEAL training as well that that you have to go through all these things. But it's not only, you know, it's academic, mental, physical, uh, the whole combination of things where they really stress you and, uh, and you know, that's how they figure out you've got the right stuff. If you're able to survive that, then uh, then you move on, you get your wings, and now you're eligible for a flight assignment. How many people
0: that get selected to enter the pipeline, the two-year pipeline,
1: how many people don't make it? You know, it's very rare that a person doesn't make it because they've been filtered. So filtered. They've been filtered. Uh, You know, the book says 4,000. That was when it first began. But when I was in and it's my 12th try, we were up to 12,000. This past selection run, they were up to 18,000 applicants. (sighs) So they filter it pretty well. Uh, including the psychologists that filter everything. That you know, when they uh, when they select you, you know, the, the, they have a high probability, ninety nine point nine percent, that you're gonna make it yeah. because you've been filtered, you've been tested, aptitude testing, psychological testing, uh, stress testing. So they have a feeling that you're gonna make it. So, but you still got to do it.
0: Yeah, know? no, that's the the impression that I got when reading this. Also talking to Johnny Kim and. Is that if you get selected, they've already they've already figured out. because the thing that's interesting to me is you talk about you're putting these failure failure situations mm-hmm. over and over again. And you know, there's people that panic in those situations. Mm-hmm. There's people that lose their cool in those situations. There's people that don't know how to handle themselves. That's why I think it's interesting, like just because you became a pilot. Well, if you panic, if you become a pilot, you learn to get control of your emotions right. and not panic. And same thing with scuba diving. Right. If you panic while you're scuba diving, if something goes wrong, you're going to have some real you're problems. You're going to have some problems. So those are things that they're looking at your application and going, well, he's a pilot. So we know he's at least going to be able to detach from his emotions. So, oh, he's a scuba diver. So when things get he's intense, he's not claustrophobic. So there's they have all these things in line so that you can – you have a pr- very high percentage chance. Obviously, you could have some kind of a medical anomaly or something – but that is the I, I do I'm I'm curious I'm sure people will give me feedback if there's a more highly screened job than astronaut and I know you just gave some props to seal training I could tell you uh, there's all kinds of knuckle draggers in seal I'm I'm probably case <laughs> case in point you know exhibit A uh, that, that that what we go through is more about just being wet cold and miserable but um so huh. Fast forward a little bit. Once our two years of training and testing were over, we held a small graduation ceremony at Space Center Houston. Kent Rommel, the chief of the astronaut office, said a few words before presenting each of us with a silver pin with the astronaut logo on it. This is a symbol used for astronauts who have yet to travel into space a gold pin symbolizes that an astronaut has already flown on a mission. So you get the new guy symbol. Exactly. (laughs) But it's an important symbol because
1: you're now eligible. You're in the pool of eligible astronauts. When they select a new crew, you could be one selected. Whereas before you were just an ASCAN, Mm. astronaut candidate. You couldn't be selected (laughs) to train for a real mission. Now you're eligible to get assigned. And meanwhile, you talk about that you have...
0: So once you once you become an astronaut and you're not an ass can anymore. (laughs) I'm using that. (laughs) That's that's a good one. Once you're not an ass can anymore, you're an actual astronaut. Then you spend twenty percent of your time sort of focused on training and simulations and getting ready to fly a mission. Eighty percent of your time is work. Yes. And your
1: job was a Cape Crusader. Exactly. Tell us about the Cape Crusader. Yeah, we call them C Squareds because uh, <laughs> uh, Cape Crusader two C's C Squares. Um, it was great. I was a great job. Um, you know, two weeks before launch, you and uh, three other buddies, a group of four astronauts, you know, you fly over from Houston to Florida, where the bird's at, the shuttle, and you start prepping the vehicle for launch. So you start prepping the inside and doing testing with ground control and everything. So you get everything ready for the mission, and then uh, and then uh, the day of the launch. Then uh, if you're the lead uh, C squared, then you get the number seven on. You know how you see all those white te- mm-hmm. quote, technicians? The number seven is always the astronaut. There's always there's always an astronaut there because he's the one that buckles the their fellow astronauts into uh, the cockpit of every uh, every mission, and unfortunately, your face is the last one they see before they go up into space. <laughs> you yeah. know, and so so, uh, and I did that a couple of times. Um, you know, I for for like uh, for like two years, I participated as a C squared. But during the last part of those two years, I got I was the lead uh, C squared because uh, that's how it usually happens: is mm-hmm. the lead guy first you you're the new guy. And then uh, you're the middle guy, and then uh, you're the expert, and then you get assigned, so you move out, and then so the middle guy becomes the expert, and so that's kind of like a FIFO, first in, first out kind of thing. You become an expert by lieu of your experience, but then you get assigned to a mission. And so that's what happened to me. I participated in about seven launches during those two years, and the last two I was the uh, lead C-square. And uh, it's great because you go there two weeks before, you're, uh, you're in crew quarters, uh, so you, you spend time with the astronauts. You know, they arrive about a week before the launch. So you spend time with them uh, before they're going to go off to their mission. You're, t- you're debriefing them on the status of the bird and how things are going and all that kind of thing, any questions they have. And then uh, the day of the launch, you, know, you go out there with them, and uh, you're out there strapping them in and getting them ready. And then it's pretty neat because you're also part of the rescue crew. So you're in the closest, the absolute closest part you can be to watch the launch. Oh, dang. Uh, I mean, you feel the... So like where, where is you it could, physically? Where are you? You can feel uh, one of the bunkers. You can feel the heat. You can feel the heat of the exhaust, you know, because it's so close. I mean, it's dangerously close. So you're you, sitting there in a bunker. Yeah. And, and, and with, with a bulletproof glass or some yeah, kind. Exactly. And you can watch how yeah. how
0: far away you think you are from it.
1: Uh, let's see, I would say about a mile, mile and a half, maybe and you can still feel the heat you, in the yeah, glass. you can feel you can feel the heat. And uh, but it's just amazing. I mean that launch that you go out I mean it's 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 it's, it's crazy when you see it take off. Uh, you can't believe that big heavy piece of yeah. metal is gonna take off and you know, there it goes. I was
0: going through Navy boot camp. So this is September sometime I think it was either September or October of 1990 and I'm in Orlando, Florida going to boot camp and I'm standing at parade rest out on the out on the grinder and there was a space shuttle launch and we sat, you know, sat there and watched this thing go up into space. Yeah. 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 <laughs>
1: it's a quite an uh, image isn't it yeah, yeah. even from that distance. Yeah, yeah, very
0: cool. Um meanwhile going back to look my wife Adelita had just opened up a restaurant in Houston. Yeah. <laughs> down the street from the Johnson Space Center on the corner of Saturn and Gemini in the Clear Lake area. So she's just getting after it, going and opening
1: up at a restaurant. She always had a dream of opening up a restaurant. You know, she grew up in the same socioeconomic conditions I did. Her parents are from Mexico, and uh, she was born over there because she was born in November. Okay, there you go. Close to Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> Else she would have been born here, but she was born over there. and uh, So she came up with the same upbringing I did. And um, and so her dream was always to uh, own and operate a restaurant. And so uh, once I got situated, I got selected. I f- I was jogging one day and I found this place that was for rent, and I took her. I said, "How about here? It's only a couple blocks from the restaurant." So we opened it. It's called. It was called uh, Tierra Luna Grill, uh, and Tierra Luna means uh, Earth, Earth Moon. moon. Yeah. But my buddies. Uh, astronaut buddies didn't call it Earth Moon because Tierra is also dirt. <laughs> so they call it Dirt Moon Grill. <laughs> so let's go to Dirt Moon Grill to eat. And so that, that would be the hangout for the astronauts to eat. But I remember the very first time I, um, I went out there as a C squared, uh, Adelita had just opened up the restaurant. And so imagine this you know, we get up at three in the morning. Um, and so I go and prep the vehicle. Uh, and then I go and 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 the uh, astronauts arrive about six o'clock, so so we we then tuck them in into the into the space shuttle, you know, close the hatch, secure everything, do our leak checks. Everything works out. We go out to the muster area for the rescue area, and um, and we see them blast off. And that was my first. That was the first shuttle I seen in person launch, and I was that close, and so it takes off. It takes off and. Uh, this is about 9:30 now. So as soon as it takes off, there's nothing for us to do. So what do we do? We hop on the uh, on the uh, T-38 jet uh, that's right there at, 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 that we had fl- flown in mm-hmm. from uh, Houston, and we go back to Houston Ellington Field. And Ellington Field's about six miles from Johnson Space Center. So and it's still midday. I said, well, I'm not going to go home now. So I said, I could go back to the office. So I'm driving to the office, but on the way is Adelita's restaurant. So I'm going to go get some lunch. Get some
0: Dirt Moon. Yeah, <laughs>
1: let's go, go Dirt Moon Grill and get some lunch. And plus, I want to tell Adelita the whole exciting uh, what I saw. Oh, because that, was your, that was your first one. That was your first C2. So I'm over there so excited. And, you know, because I flew on the T 38 over the Gulf, over the pond, landed. So there I am telling Adelita. You know how I you know, flew the T thirty eight jet. We're back. Uh, how I saw the space shuttle. You know to think that they the space shuttle. I was on the space shuttle at 3, 4, 5 in the morning, and uh, now it's up in space, and my buddies are up in space. And she's kind of like what, looking at her watch, and, it's kinda, and so she wasn't even paying attention to me. <laughs> she's like <"Bah, laughs> and blah I blah said, blah. Yeah, blah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's kind of like the teacher from Charlie Brown, right? <laughs> and uh, and and so I I I kind of I say, hey, what's wrong? I said, oh, nothing. I said, well, yeah, maybe you can help me. I said, sure, sure, what, what can I do? I said, do you have about an hour, hour and a half to spare? I said, yeah, I, I probably can. I'm not, no one's expecting me back in the office. So yeah, I, could, I got an hour and a half spare. I said, well, my dishwasher didn't show up today. I said, would you mind, you know, this is the busy time. The busy time's coming, it's close to lunch. Would you mind washing the dishes for me for just in about an hour and a half, just till the rush goes over? And I'm still in my blue flight suit. Get some, <laughs> <I>, <laughs> <You know>, So <laughs> I put on an apron and I, I, you know, roll up my sleeves, and there I am, you know, spraying beans and rice <laughs> off the plates, and because it's, it's a Mexican restaurant, you know, and all this stuff. And she walks in, and and I said, you know, I tell her, I can't believe it. It's at three in the morning, I was in the most sophisticated piece of machinery that humans could ever had made. And then I was flying a T 38 jet <laughs> across the pond, the Gulf of Mexico, landed it here. And what am I doing right now? I'm washing freaking beans off a plate. <laughs> And she just looked at me. I said, "But you're doing a damn good job. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the most overqualified dishwasher of all time. Probably the yeah. only, uh, probably the only uh, dishwasher ever to take a T-38 jet to work.
1: Exactly. And uh, so, so that's uh, you know, it humbles. Gotta you. stay the, humble. The family humbles you. The family. Uh, yeah. And I'll tell you the other story that you, 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 I didn't tell you also that has to do with the blue suit too, is um. Which, which one was it? My my fourth daughter, my fourth daughter. Uh, I mean, the fourth in line, third daughter, the youngest daughter of them all. I remember when I got selected as an astronaut. Well, they give you that blue flight suit, right? And because uh, it has your Velcro name tag here and everything, and the NASA meatball logo and all American flag and all that kind of stuff. So it looks pretty cool. <laughs> so. They give it to you. So I bring it home, you know, the first day they gave it to me. So, you know, I want to try it on, make sure it's the right size they gave me and all that. So I put it on. My wife has a full dress mirror in the bedroom, right? So there I am. I'm putting it on. You know, it has zippers galore everywhere, right? Zippers here, zippers here, zippers here, zippers here. Zippers on the legs and zippers down the pant legs and all that stuff. So I'm playing with them, getting to know, and then, you know, posing, kind of doing my best, you know, <laughs> hero shots kind of thing, you know? <laughs> hey, I'm, I'll be truthful. I was kind of, you know, I was you know, flexing kind of thing, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And then my, my five-year-old daughter walks into the bedroom, the door's open, and, 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 and she's kind of like, yeah, look, she was younger she was four years old because I remember she w- she still had her little, you know, kind of the the Maggie uh, oh, yeah, pacifier. pacifier. Yeah, and and she's looking at me like this and tilting her head one way, tilting her head the other way, and I said, oh, she's going to see me in my blue flight suit. So she heard, you know, because we've been talking that I became an astronaut and this and that. She's going to go and she's going to hug me and say, hey, papi, I'm so happy you're an astronaut and all that. That's what the reaction? I think she's gonna happen when she, as she sees me. I didn't get embarrassed that she saw me posing because yeah, she's little. Mm-hmm. If it was my wife, I would have been a little embarrassed, but <laughs> she was a little kid. So I, I, so you know, I said, "Hey, Mika, how you doing?" And she's still turning her head, and then in between the pacifier and everything, you know, she points at me, and she says, "You look like Papa Smurf." <laughs> <laughs> So from then on, it became whenever I want to look for my suit, I say, where's the Smurf suit? Because <laughs> when it's in the laundry or something, I say, where's my Smurf suit? I need my Smurf suit. And so <laughs> got to stay humble. The family will
0: keep yeah, you humble. The That's family for sure. humbles you. Exactly.
1: <laughs> uh, you,
0: going forward a little bit, you say, everything seemed to be going according to how I ideally imagine it would when I was a kid working in the ruts and groves of the fields. Though my life seemed in order, there was a certain sense of emptiness. There was no reason for me to feel this way since I had everything I'd ever wished for. Out of nowhere, I heard my mother's voice saying, what is the purpose of having goals in life, working hard for them, and achieving them if you cannot share them with others? Even though I was sharing this moment with my family and friends, I was still not completely enjoying the moment, or myself. This was particularly true after coming to Stockton to speak at a school. I felt the excitement my visit generated when I shared my experiences with the elementary school children, but then when I returned to Houston for training, it felt as if I had never visited Stockton. Something was missing, something that that could give continuity to my visits. During this time, my friends and colleagues had called or emailed me to tell me what a positive impact my selection as an astronaut had made in the Stockton community. That was when the idea hit me. Why not start a foundation that capitalizes on my role as an astronaut and allows me to inspire kids to do well in school? So therefore, um, Angel Picon, am I saying that right? and Patty Tovar, two of my great friends, friends, helped me start the legal framework for establishing a nonprofit organization called the Jose Hernandez Reaching for the Stars Foundation. Angel and Patty put together a board and helped me define the foundation's mission, which is to inspire kids to dream the impossible and to emphasize that through education. Anything is possible. And you say, I do not believe in just pointing out a problem and expecting the government to solve it on its own. I would like to think that this is the responsibility of every person in the United States and that the private sector and foundations such as mine should take some ownership for resolving this issue and that issue is getting more kids into specifically STEM. STEM,
1: science, technology, engineering, and math fields, yes.
0: So you got that foundation started. We'll talk a little bit about that at the end. Sure. you asked to see me, sir, I said as soon as I walked into mister Steve Lindsay's office. mister Lindsay was an active astronaut and the chief of the astronaut office. He was a very intelligent and slender all American Air Force man whose gray hair gray haired head stored a half century's expert experience and knowledge. Yes, Jose, please have a seat, he told me politely. I've called to inform you that you have been selected to form part of the crew of the upcoming STS-128 mission. In about 15 months, you will be at the International Space Station. We will announce the names of the rest of the crew members at our all-hands meeting. This was something that I had longed for and wished for my entire life. It was the preamble to my dream come true. My dream had been actualized. I found myself one step closer, a significant step closer to flying into space. I thought, finally, my time has come. The big day. Yes. (laughs) You got told it was a go. Fast forward a little bit. Here we go. As the launch date approached, It became harder to sleep. I tossed and turned for hours until I was finally able to sleep soundly. Part of the reason I was not able to sleep was because I kept thinking about what could possibly go wrong during the mission. What if something fails? What will happen to my family? How will my wife, kids, and parents handle it? Those thoughts disrupted my tranquility. Luckily, though, as the date approached, there was no time left to worry about anything but the mission. Our crew began adapting to a new schedule, going to bed at 8 a.m. and waking up at 4 p.m. We were forced to shift our sleep cycle because those were the hours we would be working on the International Space Station. The closer we got to launch date, the more lucid our mission objectives became. Our first objective was to transport a new crew member, Nicole Stott, to the ISS and then return home with another astronaut, Tim Kopra who had already spent more than two months in space. Second, we had to conduct three spacewalks to replace one of the station's ammonia-filled tanks. Last, we had to make an Itali- take an Italian-built portable laboratory called the Multi-Purpose Logistics Module, affectionately called Leonardo. We also needed to bring back to Earth about a ton of equipment and waste no longer needed aboard the ISS. With all that said, we had only 13 days to complete our three mission objectives. So you got a schedule heading up there a heavy schedule <laughs> they're, they're not playing around they're going to get their money's worth out of you exactly Um. fast forward a little bit and I'm going again look you got to get the book if you want to get the details of what's going on and it's it's really fascinating to hear you know what you're thinking about as this progresses and all the things that you're working on the things that you do as a team look I'm skipping over a bunch of stuff but what you do as a team to kind of come together as a team, the seven person group that you're gonna be working together, with, all this really incredible stuff. Uh, again, I'm not doing an audio book here. Buy the book if you, if you wanna <laughs> know what happens.
1: Yeah, there's a lot a
0: lot you're skipping. For, oh yeah, of like. course. Um, um, so I am skipping to this part here. We arrived at the launch pad and entered the elevator to go up the 192 foot level where we had access to the shuttle's hatch. A walkway allowed us to approach the white room that was next to the hatch. It was in this white room where we put on the last of our gear before entering the shuttle and getting strapped in by the closeout crew. One by one, we were called in to take our seats. Fast forward, members of the closeout crew exited the shuttle. The hatch was shut and closed. It was then that the closeout crew performed a cabin leak check and then disassembled the white room to clear the launch pad. During the last hour before launch, I sat strapped to my seat on the flight deck. A million different thoughts rushed through my mind. Fast forward a little bit, suddenly I heard the countdown reach the nine minute hold. That is when the final systems checked are conducted by the launch control center. It was almost time. Make your final adjustments and prepare for takeoff, we heard. Cabin revision complete. Manuals ready. Seconds before launch, the bottom of the launch pad was sprayed with water in an effort to cushion the noise and vibration as a result of the power dissipated by both the three main, the three shuttle main engines and the two solid rocket boosters. Everything was going to plan until Pete Nikolenko, the launch director, informed us that the weather conditions were unfavorable. Fifty minutes later, our mission was aborted due to local thunderstorms in the Florida skies. So (laughs) close. (laughs) So close. Ouch. A few hours later, a new date and time was announced for the discovery launch Wednesday August 26 2009 this was a 48 hour slip the mission management team who had set the new launch date obviously did not share our optimism about the weather improving within 24 hours as we woke up on Wednesday we found out that it was not going to happen then either we discovered a defective fuel control valve which is being replaced at the moment we pushed back the launch date again for eleven fifty-nine on Friday August 28 2009 NASA informed us. That reminds me of you know when you're on an airplane at the at, on the tarmac, and first it gets delayed, and then it gets delayed again, and all of a sudden they go, "Hey, we found a maintenance problem." The next thing you know, flight gets canceled. We're exactly. deboarding. Yeah. Deboarding. And that was a legitimate. There was a chance that you wouldn't. If this got rolled a little bit more, there would be no launch at all. That's right. So this the whole thing is in jeopardy. Yeah.
2: But was that faulty fuel valve? W- would that have been a problem? Well, That's, you
1: guys- that, that's um, you know, the thing that we don't know. You know mm-hmm. it, we're kind of lucky the weather was bad. Yeah. Because uh, you don't know if that faulty fuel valve would have acted up during that launch. Right. Uh, and, uh, and once we shut things off and then started back up, we got that indication and we replaced it. So, you know, it, it could have been that the weather saved us. Could have been.
0: You just never know. Uh, Luckily, on Friday, we once again found ourselves sitting inside Discovery ready for takeoff with only two and a half hours to go. I knew it was only a matter of time before a button was pushed and we would be well on our way into space. The NASA team in Houston was confident that the third time was indeed a charm. Suddenly, in the blink of an eye, the countdown clock was set into motion after having reached the nine-minute hold. We could hear the countdown nine minutes, Five seconds, four, three, two. We closed our helmet visors as we heard the three main engines light up. Shortly thereafter, we felt the gentle vibrations of the engines. About two seconds later, as the countdown reached zero, the noise level increased in a magnitude and the vibrations grew more violent. The two solid motors attached to the side of the external tanks it had ignited. Just as I thought the whole shuttle was going to shake apart or fall to one side, I felt a lot of pressure on my back. I heard zero takeoff. Through the corner of my eye, I could see the tower staying behind as we lifted off. We were on our way. Immediately, the muscle memory of our training simulations took over. I quickly focused on my job as mission specialist two, which was to execute the role of a flight engineer. I began reading off the predetermined milestones to our commander and pilot while monitoring the screens and gauges in the front and above me to ensure none of them would deviate from their expected readings. The most dynamic parts of our mission were blastoff and the subsequent eight-and-a-half-minute flight into space. During the latter, we went from resting on the launch pad to orbiting our planet at more than 17,500 miles an hour at an altitude of some 280 miles. Two-and-a-half minutes into our launch, the two solid rocket boosters separated and fell to the ocean about 200 miles northeast of the Kennedy Space Center. After the initial two and a half minutes, the next six minutes became quieter and the ride became a lot smoother. When we reached eight minutes and 30 seconds into the flight, we had reached the main engine cutoff. This basically meant that we had reached our top speed of one thousand or 17,500 miles an hour and it turned off our main engines. The next step was for us to monitor the separation of the external tank which was feeding our three main engines. The external tank typically ends up so high that it does not survive re-entry into the atmosphere and thus disintegrates into pieces before falling harmlessly back into the ocean. The shuttle usually possesses enough energy to continue upward and when appropriate begins orbiting the planet. Soon after this happened to us we approached we reached a microgravity environment and began floating in space high above the earth. Our mission was well on its way. <laughs> When that thing starts to rumble,
1: how does that feel? When that thing starts to go. You know, I'll be honest with you, Jaco, is, is that, you know, if there was any piece of fear during this whole process of being an astronaut, I would have to say it's probably the first three seconds of when you reach zero and you feel the three engines light up and then you... Feel the two solid rocket motors turn on, come to life. All of a sudden, things are vibrating, and uh, you know this is the type of stuff that can't be simulated here on Earth. And so you don't know what to expect. And uh, yeah, at that moment, you 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 know the first thing I said is Jose, what did you get yourself into? <laughs> you yeah. know. But then shortly after that, as the book indicates, you know muscle memory takes over, and you know we've done a bunch of simulated. Motion-based ascent runs as a crew, and uh, and so I focus onto my task at hand. You know, I had the best seat in the house because I'm sitting a little aft of the two pilots, the commander and the pilot, Kevin Ford and uh, my my commander C J Sturckow, great Marine pilot, and uh, and and Kevin Ford is an Air Force pilot, and I'm sitting a little behind them in the middle, so I get the panoramic view but you know of course I have to hawk all the uh, 10 screens of both pilots so that if anything goes uh, off nominal I peel off with the person that owns the system and me as the flight engineer you know I'm the one that's basically quarterbacking what the problem is diagnosing what we need to be doing and uh, between uh, the pilot and I uh, we solve or try to minimize its effect while the other pilot flies the nominal portion. Of the mission, and so uh, so, but it, nothing happened. It was the best simula- I always th- tell <laughs> my commander, "This was the best simulation run ever," because nothing happened. Everything uh, occurred as it was supposed to occur. Unlike our simulations, where they throw the kitchen sink at us, <laughs> and and so, uh, but man, you know, it, words can't describe those eight and a half minutes of powered flight because you know you start off like the greatest Disneyland ride ever. <laughs> And uh, and then as you as you move up the two and a half minutes when the solid rocket boosters pop off, it becomes smooth, a uh, smooth smoother ride, more quiet ride. But you start accelerating more, and you start feeling the pressure against your chest. So you end up feeling about up to uh, it goes almost up to three G's mm. of force <clears throat> right on your chest, and that's three G's is about. Um, what is it? Uh, three people that weigh exactly like you on top of you. That's how three Gs feel. So I, at, at the mark of eight and a half minutes, you're ready for this to be over. You're ready for main engine cutoff, Miko, And, and because when that happens, you stop accelerating so that 500-pound gorilla disappears. And uh, now you're kind of loosey-goosey in your seat, but you got your seatbelt on. But now you're in a microgravity environment orbiting Earth. Once every ninety minutes on a continuous basis, seventeen thousand miles an hour is that seventeen thousand five hundred miles an hour. God. you're traveling, <laughs> but because now you're not accelerating, you don't feel the g forces. So now you're, it's kind of like being on a plane going right five hundred miles an hour. You don't feel that. Uh, you only feel the takeoff kind of thing, uh, and and so yeah. So you know, it's 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 crazy because you know when you look out the window. And you see the U.S. You go off and do something for twenty minutes, and now, now you're flying over China or Australia or over Europe, kind of thing. It's it's uh, it, it's the craziest uh, feeling I've ever had. Is that's wow, this is uh, this is a good way to travel. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, that's uh, as you're describing that, both in the writing and then you talking. You're sitting on a freaking bomb, yeah. on a bomb. That's what you're sitting on. Yeah. All that stuff just wants to explode, and it's just. Control. Yeah, it's a it, little it,
1: bit. It, it's a controlled detonation. Yeah, that's and what and it you're is. You're on the top of that. And you're on ball. the top of that puppy. <laughs> yeah. Uh,
0: um, once you get into space, you go into this this schedule of all this stuff that you that you've got to do, and right. You 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 detail it in the book. It's it's a great read. One thing you you had a little case of uh, nausea while you're up there, a yeah, little yeah. bit of like seasickness. I yeah, guess.
1: they call it SAS uh, space adaptation sickness, so it makes you feel a little nauseated. Uh, you know, one of my crew members lost their cookies. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I didn't. Uh, I actually lost them on the way back, which is one uh, G readaptation. <laughs> uh, but 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 uh, on the way up, uh, one of my crewmates did uh, get get sick to the point they you know they, they had to throw up but uh but it goes away, you mm-hmm. know, after a day or so that feeling. It's kinda like being in the back of a bus and going up a mountain curves and all that. You kinda yeah. feel a little car sick, nauseated, but then it goes but away. But then it goes away. Yeah.
0: Um, Fast forward a little bit, day three, we're about 183 meters away from the International Space Station. Our shuttle began the 360-degree rotation for the purpose of being photographed using high-resolution photography and video by the space space station crew. They take pictures from the the space station of the space shuttle just to make sure there's no damage on liftoff. But that's got to be pretty weird to be up in space and you're 183 yards away from... This other big chunk of metal
1: traveling at seventeen thousand five hundred miles.
0: miles, miles yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. But but that was one of the new um, procedures as a result of the uh, Columbia accident that we put is that uh, we would you know before we docked to the station we would reach a certain distance, stop, do a holding pattern there, and then we would do a maneuver where where we would show our belly to mm-hmm. them, and as we're showing our belly, they're filming everything. Of course, uh downlinking it to the uh, engineers down on the ground, uh, looking at that leading uh wing edge and any other type of things, uh that other damage that could have occurred to your TPS system, which is your thermal protection system, which is the underbelly and the wing leading edge of the of the shuttle mm-hmm. that, that we uh we investigate, inspect. Uh The the
0: docking, you call it a collision in here. It's like it says uh, a collision or soft dock. That's got to be crazy, too. You're aiming the space shuttle at that thing, and you're going to, like,
1: connect. Yeah, you're going to (laughs) connect. And I'll tell you, um, it was even kind of crazy, a little bit more crazy for us than normal because, um, you know, nothing real big happened in terms of malfunctions during our mission except this one thing. And um, the shuttle has um, built-in jets to maneuver in space, including the Ohm's engine, Orbital Maneuvering System. Those are the big engines that we fire to slow down so that we can get back into the atmosphere. But we don't use those for docking. We have built-in jets that are on the nose, the tail, and uh, near the wings of the um, of the shuttle, and they fire to maneuver in space. and um, And we have two types. We have the regular... We we'll call it RCS jets, reaction control system jets, and then we got the verniers, which are the fine tuning jets. They're kind of like the f- small ones. They're mm-hmm. one tenth the thrust of the big ones. And so, when as, as you as you're docking to the station, you use the rough ones, the RCS, and then as you get in, you switch to the fine ones so you could do the fine tuning so that you can dock because the uh, the the pilot, the both pilots have are at the controls. I'm at the uh, station as flight engineer giving them, uh, and they're using, um, they have a target, so they have a, um, a camera system. So they're looking at, at the camera, one's looking outside, and then I'm looking at the screens, giving them speed, uh, I, I, uh, giving them uh, distance. Uh, and and then also whether they're in plane or out of plane in terms of I give them numbers to indicate that if, if it's all zeros, it means they're coming in plane, and then if it's a different number, I give them so that they can provide some type of correction, and they're doing all that. Yeah. But as I mentioned, as you get closer, you switch over to the fine jets, which move you very little, but our fine jets fail, Ooh. so there's no vernier jets. So we got the big... Hunking, uh rough, you know, coarse jets that we can do. So now our 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 commander C J Sturkow, the good marine he is, um, you know, when you when you move a, a a vernier jet, you know, you move very little. But when you move, when you uh, do the regular R C S jets, it goes <laughs> like that, right? And so what he has to do is he's looking at the. At at the approaching speed, he's looking at the at this, but now he has to time his firing so that when he fires it, as it goes, it hits at the middle, and uh, and we practice that during uh during because we practice everything, Mm -hmm. so we practice so we've done that before. But the fact is that you know that was probably one of the uh, uh, pucker moments we had Mm -hmm. in saying, geez, how we. We get this right, because if not, you 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 could damage the docking mechanism. Right. You could get stuck, or uh, or you could just bounce off, kind of thing. Sure. And so, but but he did well. I mean, like the wow. good marine pilot that he is. Semper Fi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, you
0: get docked um, sleeping up there. That sounds like it's a strange experience. You gotta like tie yourself into a sleeping bag, basically.
1: Exactly. You what happens is you got to tie, tie the four corners of your sleeping bag to structure. And then you gotta slide in, and you zip yourself up. The the, uh, the the sleeping bags have holes, so you can stick your hands out. And the weirdest thing is, you don't need a pillow because mm. your 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 head doesn't bob. Right. There's no weight. <laughs> yeah. Your hands, whatever position your hands are, that's how you're sleeping. You know, I got these cool Frankenstein pictures of my crewmates <laughs> like that. Because that's the way you sleep. I mean, whatever position you're in, you're going to sleep in that position. Wow. But I'll tell you, it was the weirdest feeling going to sleep the first and second night. But after that, I said, you know, this is the best <laughs> sleep you can ever, you know, no tempera yeah. <laughs> mattress, nothing Mattress Mac in Houston can sell <laughs> with respect to his mattresses. Uh, this is the best sleep you can get because you got no pressure Wait, points. points. You have no pressure points.
0: What's the what's the how many hours would you get to sleep for?
1: You get to sleep up. It was on the average about six hours and ten minutes. Somewhere mm. that, that's what my uh, my sleep thing said about six hours ten minutes.
0: Um, day eight, you got this in here. The eighth day of the mission was a very special one for me. Jose, the interview is set up and ready. You have four minutes and thirty seconds to do it. I was told. I was delighted to hear Carlos, a famous Mexican reporter who had been following my story for some time. Truth be told, I was terrified at the thought of knowing that millions of people in Latin America were going to see my interview. It was only after I returned and conversed with him that I found out he felt the same way. This was a historic interview as it was the first live interview from space conducted in Spanish. The minutes went by so quickly that I felt my time was up just as I was getting started. We, we talked about the view of Mexico from space, including the attractive coast of the state of Quintana Roo and the Yucatan Peninsula. We also spoke about my inability to detect borders that divide Earth into countries. There are no borders from what I can see up here. Our world leaders should see how beautiful and precious our world looks from this perspective, I said to the reporter.
1: One world from up there, huh? Yeah, you know, um, interesting story there, Jocko, with respect to what happened after that. You know, I, I, I basically uh, said, you know, the the most beautiful thing, there was two things, that two takeaways. The first one had to do with what you just mentioned, is that I was able to see Canada, the U.S., and Mexico. But what struck me in awe, and as so beautiful, is that we couldn't, I couldn't differentiate where Canada ended, the US began, or where the US ended and Mexico began. And and this aha moment, I said, man, I had to go out of this world to come to this conclusion that down there we're all just one because borders are human-made concepts designed to separate us. And how sad, because from my perspective, we're just one down there, and it'd be great to have our world leaders give to give them this opportunity. Because I'll show you, our world will be much better. Now, the thing that what the news got out of all this when I came home, and you can look up the New York Times and the L.A. Times came up with the headlines saying Mexican American astronaut. Wants to open borders. <laughs> That's what they got out of this. My story. <laughs> I said, "Good grief!" Yeah. But yeah, everything has to be politicized. They have to. They, they want to get people to click on those headlines. Exactly. And, uh, and and which I found it so sad because I said, "Yeah, I wasn't even talking about that. I was just talking about the concept that we're just one down there, you know." And uh, but somehow from there they got the fact that I wanted to. Remove all borders and get let everybody come into the U.S. Well, what can I say?
0: That's the uh, that's the media for you. Yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so again, I'm gonna I'm gonna skip forward. You got to read the book to get some of these details about the flight. Day 14. On this day, we made our final preparations to begin the deorbit procedures. This included closing our payload bay doors and once again putting on the orange LES suits for the entry phase of our flight. Observing the beauty of the earth from space was something I have not been able to put into words. Well, not in a way where I have felt I was able to truly do justice to this spectacular view. I felt goosebumps knowing that few people have had the privilege of looking at our planet from my perspective. I marveled at the blueness of the oceans, the whiteness of the clouds. At one point, I was able to make out the lights of some cities. I can see San Francisco, Mexico City, and Houston. I managed to steal a few more moments for myself while, I, while the rest of the crew worked. Without anyone noticing, I made my way over to a corner and pulled out the crucifix that Adelita gave me and said a prayer. Let us, Lord, see your love in the world. Forgive us for our wrongdoings. Give us faith to trust in your goodness. Forgive our ignorance and weakness. Give us the power to continue trusting wholeheartedly and show us what we can do for peace on earth, Amen. <clears throat> and you guys end up spending an extra time up in space, an extra day. Yes,
1: the weather was not cooperating in Florida, and flight rules are that if it's uh, if it's more than. Uh, a couple of rotations around the earth and you still can't land, you postpone it for 24 hours. And if it's still bad weather, you go to your second preferred landing site.
0: And so you got your second preferred landing site, which was California. Yes, Ed- Edwards Air Force Base, not <laughs> yeah, too far Edwards. from here. Yeah, yeah, and which was kind of nice because you were going to land in California, but also your family wasn't going to be there.
1: Yes, yes. My family was waiting for me in um, – In Florida, Mm -hmm. because they were they wanted to witness the landing in person, and of course, uh, once it got canceled, they didn't have enough time uh, to fly and meet us over here at Edwards Air Force Base. But I kind of liked it because you know it's California, and uh, I'm landing at Edwards Air Force Base. I call it poetic justice. because it's uh, it's some 80 miles from Chino, Ontario, where I used to pick strawberries. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> and yeah. so oh, here, yeah. and here so. I am coming in with a, uh, you know, in a NASA space suit, a good old American flag on my shoulder and coming in as a U.S. NASA astronaut uh, when, you know, 40 years ago, I was, you know, over there picking uh, strawberries. Whew. Man. Uh this
0: landing was no joke, too. I mean, you describe it here, as each minute passed the distance between our shuttle and Earth lessened. The planet also grew bigger in size before our very eyes, which meant that we were getting closer to home. In my mind, I was counting down the minutes until we were safely on the ground. Our landing point at Edwards Air Force Base in California was a mere dot on our map. As, dis- as Discovery darted across the sky at a high speed, I saw in our instruments that we broke Mach 25. At that point, we were traveling at slightly more than 25 times the speed of sound. I could feel the buffeting of the shuttle with the atmosphere, and I noticed an orange glow outside our windows. We were definitely in the atmosphere now. I noticed gravity gravity slowly taking its effect as the weight of my helmet attached to my orange LES became heavier. At about 26,000 feet, we broke through the cloud layer, and I had a good view of the ground both below us and in front of us. By now, the shuttle had the characteristics of an airplane. As the aerodynamic surface controls were responding to the commander's input, the shuttle slowed down to normal airplane speeds and behaved more like a glider would, since it did not have an active propulsion system during the landing phase of the flight. This, of course, meant we only had one opportunity to land it. Our commander and pilot had practiced these landings hundreds, if not thousands of times in simulators and in actual approaches, utilizing one of the two planes that had been modified to be able to fly the shuttle's landing profile. At 400 feet, with the gear already armed, our pilot, Kevin, activated the gear down command. This poised the wheels of the shuttle for contact with the surface of the pavement at Edwards Air Force Base in preparation for landing. The landing strip was ready in no time. Soon thereafter, we were literally racing down the landing strip until the parachute deployed and the pedal brakes slowly brought us to a complete stop. The opening of the shuttle doors reminded me of the times I had to open them to welcome back the returning astronauts. However, this time, I would be welcomed. And indeed, we were welcome back. I was told by one of my class colleagues, as he unbuckled my seat. We patted one another on the back. Once I was able to stand up, I exited the shuttle with a smile on my face. The seven of us crew members were beyond ecstatic. Everything went as planned. Our mission commander began to congratulate us and said we did it. We couldn't have asked for a better team. All of us had to spend an extra day on the base before we were able to go home. As I waited for the moment when I could go back to Houston, I could not fathom the irony of my dream going into space, space, both beginning in and concluding in the golden state. As a boy, I dreamed of becoming an astronaut as I picked crops. As a man, I would exit the shuttle as an astronaut on a landing strip located just a few miles from where I grew up picking strawberries. It was poetic, really. There was truly this delightful symmetry to my life that helped me realize the importance of remaining humble and remembering where I came from. Epic, um, and and the story goes on here. You go on to talk about retiring from NASA, uh, going into the corporate world as an executive. You, you
1: let, let me tell you a little bit about, about yeah. the retirement uh, part of it. It was a hard decision to to uh, go about and uh, deciding, Jocko, because um, I'll tell you, I remember when we got back when we got back from um, from space. Shortly thereafter, they announced the retirement of the shuttle fleet. So they were going to retire the whole space shuttle program. I think they had four or five flights more manifested, and then after that, program's over. Mm-hmm. And uh, But they had them all assigned. Because so, they assigned about four or five crews ahead because they're training already for the next flight or they're going to get ready to train. And so I knew... You know, since I just got back, I'm in the back of the line, right, mm-hmm. uh, of the queue. So I knew I wasn't going to get assigned another mission. Um, but then I was one of the prime candidates. Uh, what we were going to be flying is, uh, and we were flying already, was with the Russians, right? We pay the Russians $50 million per seat, and we go up on the Soyuz, um, and, and they'll take you to the station. Uh so, so I was one of the prime candidates because of my background of traveling to Russia for five years and knowing Russian and all that. And I thought, I, I thought okay, well, I'm going to be one of the first ones. I'll, I'll, I'm, I'm down for that. I'll do that. But then you read the fine print. And, um, you read the fine print, and, and what you don't realize is that the um, training in Russia, it's a three-year training program. And so 80% of the time you're in Russia— and it's not continuous. It's like you go six weeks, you come back one week. You go eight weeks, come back one week. You go know, twelve weeks, come back two weeks, kind of thing like that for three years. And um, and then you go up for six months, continuous. And then when you come back, you go on the road for six months, continuous, uh, divulging everything, all the science you did. So, and all in all, it was a four-year ordeal where you were going to be gone about. 90 percent of the time, 85, 90 percent of the time from home. And I got five kids. My oldest at that time was 15 years old and, uh, and the youngest was about seven years old. And so I did the math and I said, you know all these kids I'm gonna miss you know they're you know they're in Boy Scouts, they're softball, baseball, proms, high school graduation, uh, you know, this 15-year-old is going to be a 19-year-old already off in college. I, at least I assume he's going to go to college. I'm not going to be around to find out or to guide him. And so so quickly, I think my Hispanic culture kind of kicked in, and 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 I gave a lot of weight to the family. And I'll tell you, man, it was the hardest decision in my life because, you know, we just got through reading what it took to get here to get there, to get assigned, and to be part of NASA. And after flying only once, here I am considering chucking it all away because I could fly again. But, you know, I kind of just thought about it, prayed about it. Uh, I didn't want to talk to my wife about it because I know her answer is, we can do it, we can do it. I didn't want her to convince me. I said, you know, this is uh you know there's there's a fine line where you know you do it for what you want to do for you and then that fine line of being more egotistical than you know not considering other folks and uh and so you know I thought about it thought about it and finally I said you know I think the best thing for me to do is to just leave give someone else an opportunity who can fly I mean I could stay and not fly, but I'm taking up a billet. I said, and that's not fair either. I said, I. it's probably best for me to leave and give someone else a chance. Give the Johnnies of the world a chance. <laughs> Johnny Kim is <a> seat. <laughs> exactly. Give give the Johnny Kims of the world an opportunity so they can fly. And so it was the hardest decision uh that I, I that I could have uh Made, but you know, I look back at it and I look at where all my kids are at in life right now. All college graduates. My youngest, seven-year-old, is a freshman in mechanical engineering at UC Merced. Uh, You know, the PhD. My three girls have their bachelor's. One of them is finishing her master's in May, and uh, one of them is a big uh, influencer in uh, in 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 TikTok. Okay. And if you you guys really want to have a laugh. Uh, because I come on a lot She films me a lot uh, Go at, at The Vanessa Hernandez Okay And you'll see You'll see her You'll see me Make a fool of myself <laughs> But you know Anything for my daughter You know but You're she, not
0: doing TikTok dances Are you? Uh, or are you? Oh
1: You gotta oh, look at it man. man All kinds of stuff man <laughs> I'm telling you All kinds of She graduated from So lo- you truly will do anything For your family <laughs> Exactly TikTok exactly. <laughs> dances exactly. She graduated from Loyola Marymount And she works for A uh, vitamin pharmaceutical company, uh, near Loyola Marymount. So she still lives in the LA area. And, uh, but she's been, she's been, you know, doing social media stuff and, uh, she's going to start her own podcast too. So they already contacted her for her to start, but, but she's been doing good on TikTok. I mean, she, she represents a few companies in TikTok and she's, I think she's banking more on TikTok <laughs> than she is in her day job, you know, right. and working a lot less. So, but, but yeah, but it's those decisions, you know, that I think, uh, uh, you know, I, I really, uh, you know, I look back at it and I don't regret it because I look at how my kids turned out because I've been here for them and I continue to be there for them and uh, and so I think I made the right decision.
0: Yeah, well, that's uh, definitely a, a difficult decision to make. I know I was in the military and that's the, the decision that military individuals like myself have to make at some point. Are you gonna keep going? Are you gonna keep going on deployment? Yeah. You're talking about missing all those things? I missed all those things. Yeah. I missed everything, yeah. you know? And eventually had to say, uh, I, owe, I owe a little something. I, I've done what I can for the country. I owe something to the, the family that I've left behind for months and months and months and months at a time. So that's, I agree. The, that's, you know People ask me, oh, what's the t- toughest decision you ever made in the military? and they think I'm gonna say some tactical situation Mm -hmm. or some mission, it was like, no. Deciding to get out was the thing that I thought the most about and it was the hardest decision I had to make.
1: And then people would tell me, well, didn't you know you'd gone in? Why did you go in in the first place? I said, no, the the rules were changed Mm -hmm. midstream. I mean, they decided to retire the space shuttle fleet. I mean, I I thought the space shuttle fleet, you know, they told me it was gonna be going on for another 10, 20 years, and I would've got another three, four flights under Mm -hmm. my belt. But when you take that away, And they say, hey, the only game in town now is with the Russians for the next 10 years. I figured, you know, I think it's time for me to leave then. If you guys change the rules and I value my family as much as I do, and I think they need me Mm -hmm. at this point in their life, pre-teenage, teenage teenage years. I mean, that's the most important part of a kid's growing up stage. And, you know, I think it's a job where both parents have to be present. And, you know, thumbs on, on them to make sure that they, just like my parents were with me, make sure that they're you know on the straight and narrow go heading in the right direction yeah yeah um
0: and then you ended up getting a job in, in the in the corporate world um you end up running for Congress yes
1: yes i get i get i get uh i, I, I get uh convinced well they convinced me to run for Congress and it was uh it, it yeah you know, that's a long story in itself too but but it was at the urging of uh, President Obama. You know, He, he uh, sought me out not once, not twice, but three times. Mm-hmm. And when you get sought out the third time, and your commander in chief straight out tells you. <laughs> the first two times, he said you ought to consider it. And the third time, he, said he, he told me, and I quote, I'm going to make the ask. I said, please run for Congress in California. So when the Commander-in- chief stares at you in the eyes and says, "Run for Congress, what do you do? You salute the flag." <laughs> and so, so I did, you know, I gave it my best. We, we were um, they didn't put me in my district because mm-hmm. my district is I'm a Democrat, so my district is a heavy Democrat, but we already had someone there mm-hmm. uh, that had seniority. so why why knock off a seniority level right. Democrat and put a uh, freshman there? Uh, why not go after a Republican seat? So they sent me next door. At the time, they were plus eleven in registration, uh, and we lost by one and a half points. So we almost made it, but but it left a bad taste in my mouth. Mm-hmm. You know, politics. Oh, I can't imagine
0: the taste that it left
1: in your mouth. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Politics. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like you know. I just don't have. You know, I have the stomach for a lot of things, but but when it's Stuff like that—it's kind of like there's no rules and you know, there's scrupulous, I mean, it's just like no ethics at all. And I said, you know, that's not me. <sighs> so you one know? shot was enough at that one. I think for now, never say never. Yeah. never say never, Jocko. But uh, <laughs> but but for now, it's 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 uh, I, I think I'm doing okay where I'm at right now.
0: Yeah. Um, now you know you, you go around. You know you, you do speaking events right now and and. You talk about that a little bit here, and I I wanna close out, You know, we've covered some of the book, but I wanted to close out the book with this this little section where you talk about what you talk about. You say, I share with everyone the magical recipe for success that I applied to my own life. It is a recipe that I learned from my parents, and I also share it here with you. One, identify your goal in life. Two, realize and understand how far you are away from that goal. Three, develop a roadmap to get there. Don't skip steps. Four, get yourself a good education consistent with your goal. Five, develop a good work ethic and put your heart into reaching your goal. Six, and this is the one you added, you mentioned earlier, exemplify perseverance. Never give up on your dream and remember that it is the journey, not the destination, that is of most importance. Then you continue on. These are not the steps to become an astronaut. These are the steps to harvest your own stars. The recipe works for anyone in any part of the world,
1: and trust me, it's infallible.
0: So that's what you go around talking about.
1: Um, yes, I'm a motivational speaker, and uh, I, I share my story, and uh, also that recipe, and uh, and talk uh, and talk about what it, what you know what it took to get there, and. Like a good engineer i try to try to um basically capture it in a formula type of environment like the uh uh recipe that mm-hmm. you just read off there I also give a three element strategy that says hey to reach your goal you, you know you've gotta you've gotta and this i learned afterwards mm-hmm. right is 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 you gotta know what the minimum requirements are once you define your goal is Natural tendency and ninety nine point nine percent of us get this right. Is you ask yourself, uh, what are the requirements to get there? You know, you want to be a doctor. You know, you got to go to med pre med medical school and pass the boards. Lawyer pre law law pass the bar. Astronaut, you know, you got to go to the STEM field, get graduate degree, uh, four or five years experience, and then start applying. So that's the first one. Everybody gets that one. You know, it's, it's know the requirements. Second one is. Emulate successful people that you want to aspire to be like. In other words, you know, ask yourself, what do they have that I don't have? You know, if you want to be a CEO, study a CEO and study, find out how they got there. You want to be an astronaut? Study an astronaut. I mean, that's what I did after my sixth uh, failure. Remember, mm-hmm. I compared myself. I found out they were all pilots. So what did I do? I invested in myself. I became a pilot. Then I found out they were all Scuba certified. What did I do? I invested in myself and became Scuba certified. The third stage of that of, of that uh, of, uh, 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 of that strategy is is you got to create a differentiator. In other words, differentiate yourself from differentiate yourself from the competition you know at at the time you know it was from 4000 and went up to 12000 uh that i had to differentiate myself so it was no accident that i took that job going to russia it was strategic in my career i say it's going to help my career obviously but it's also going to help me over here because you know i just read that the us and the newly formed Russia signed an agreement to build what was gonna be the International Space Station. So it didn't take a rocket scientist to figure out, even though I am <laughs> one. I know you are one. <laughs> even though I am one, <laughs> but it didn't take a rocket scientist to figure out we were gonna be working with the Russians. So my great differentiator is, during these next five years in this project, I'm gonna, I traveled more than 25 times to the Russian Siberian countryside and worked with the Russians. And all this you know, helped me get the upper hand on the other, fourteen twelve thousand applicants, because very few of them could say, or claim similar experience than what I had, and at least that got me in the door to get, start getting interviewed, and then the rest I would just sell myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, so that's the three element strategy that I add up <laughs> up to that,
0: and so that's what so that's what you're doing now. Now you got your foundation, the Reaching the Stars Foundation.
1: Yes, at astrojh.org. Yep. If you go look at it, uh, astrojh.org, uh, you'll see everything we do in the Central Valley where we try to motivate kids to get interested in uh, STEM careers, mm-hmm. science, technology, engineering, and math. We have a summer academy at the University of the Pacific, same school I went to, where we have uh, uh, kids from the 7th to 12th grade uh, in a s- six-week summer program. Where we uh, basically inundate them with STEM concepts, fun STEM concepts that they can take back to their school and uh, and 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 get a head start in their uh, math and science courses they're going to see the following year. So we we basically expose them to those concepts that we know they're we know what the core curriculum is. So we expose them to those ideas in a fun. Experimental, experiential way uh, so that when they go back to school, they say, Oh, yeah, I've seen this. As a matter of fact, I know of an experiment. And so they do very well. And so we, we do that uh, for them. And then uh, and then we, we also have a um, science blast where we get uh, over a thousand kids in the fifth grade um, to uh, in a one day. Uh, exploratorium type of environment where we have all kinds of hands-on experiments. We have people from Lawrence Livermore Lab, from Google, from Apple uh, come, and they talk about what their careers are and basically uh, you know expose them to STEM careers. And why we do that at fifth grade? Because that's the age when I decided I wanted to be an astronaut. So I think if it's good enough for me, it's good enough for them. And then uh, whatever monies we have left over, because we... We sort of uh, have a year-to-year budget. Whatever monies we have left over, we give scholarships to the kids. Sure. Yeah. So,
0: No, that's awesome. I know, um, the, you know that's what America needs. America needs kids that are growing up that want to learn STEM.
1: Yes. It, we need lots of engineers <laughs> and scientists. Yeah, that's,
0: that's, the, that's the competition for the future. The Chinese the and, 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 are and all India
1: over are kicking our butts and producing more scientists and engineers than we are and that's going to cost us a lot on big time 10, terms, ten years from now 20 years from now it's going to cost us if we don't if we don't rectify the situation.
0: Quickly. Yeah, I know I'm I'm I can find myself sometimes being pretty down on the academia, right? For people that are going into debt and they're they're borrowing all this money to go to college but they get a degree that doesn't really give them a job, you know, they'll get a degree in something that doesn't you, you can't go. You don't have a skill set I mean, really? engineering is a skill set. Yes. It's something that you learn, something you know how to do. So the fact that you're doing that, that that program is leaning kids in the right direction for something that can actually provide not only them with a good career, but also provides America with something that we desperately need and we're desperately going to need even more in the future. Yes. And on top of all that, you also have a winery,
1: right? Well, <laughs> Well, first of all, you know, all that is just volunteer you know we, i get i get nothing out of it right except but, a, but i feel st- good but you still have to put it together you have oh, to yeah yeah, it and run a, it. yeah it's a time sink yeah right. It's a, right. but unpaid
0: time sink But i'm saying head. on top of all the time you spend doing that and all the time you spend speaking you also
1: but before the winery i also have a uh, a engineering consulting oh, business okay. first yeah i have a Tierra luna engineering uh where i do Aerospace consulting, you know. For example, I helped Mexico uh, buy and launch three communication satellites from Boeing Corporation. Uh, that was a 1.2 billion dollar purchase for Mexico, and uh, and they hired me because uh, the Undersecretary of Communications was uh, he he himself admitted. He says, "Look, I'm an economist, a politician, economist. I know diddly squat about satellites, and here we are spending 1.2 billion dollars." Uh, can you help us? So, I worked on a neat project for about four years, okay. uh, helping them launch three communication satellites so they uh, it's, they can have internet throughout all of Mexico. Any population over five thousand, the government put a dish so they would have connectivity mm-hmm. uh, to the outside world, which is uh, which was pretty neat. So I do that. Um, you know i've I've also helped a university build a CubeSat, small satellite ten by ten by ten centimeters. And with NASA, we launched it for free for them. And uh, they became the first university in Mexico to have built, designed, and keyword operated their own satellite from space. So we did that for them. Uh, I'm helping. I also created an a aerospace project. Curriculum for them, um, working with a uh, three-campus university in northern Mexico, and that's Tierra Luna Engineering. Uh, where, which by the way, if you go to the .dot com store there, TierraLunaEngineering.com, .dot com, you can actually get the book "Reaching for the Stars." You can get the children's book there, and uh, you can buy it on Amazon. And quite frankly, you could probably buy it a little cheaper. But if you buy it through our website, you'll guarantee that I can sign it and dedicate whatever you want me to say on it. I'll dedicate it, and the proceeds go to my foundation. Mm-hmm. So that's why I want to uh, make sure and clarify that. You know, I think it's like thirty bucks for the book or something like mm-hmm. that. But it's signed by me, and uh, and we send it off, and uh, and so you can do that at TerraLunaEngineering.com. And then as 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 as, um, if, as if that wasn't enough, I kind of come full circle and uh my wife wanted a back to the fields exactly my <laughs> no my wife wanted a home out in the country and so about 5 years ago you know when we were well down established back in stockton i started looking for some property cuz you, know, you know happy wife happy life right <laughs> and so i started looking for some, for some property so that we can build a house out in the country cuz she wants to live in the country and i said yeah okay i'm i'm a country boy too and man, I saw the price and they were expensive. And then I ran into this twenty acre vineyard and it was income producing and it was only about twice as much as an empty three acre lot in the country. And I said, Man, that's a no-brainer. I'm gonna I'm gonna become a farmer. <laughs> <laughs> back to your roots. Back to my roots exactly. <laughs> back to the fields. <laughs> back to the fields and I became a a, a, a grape uh farmer. And the reason why I was so into it was because, first of all, I know how to pick grapes, but that's the only thing I know. I don't know <laughs> diddly squat about about running a vineyard, but you know who does? My dad. My dad's worked in there all his life. And so I told pops, that's what we call him, pops. I said, I told pops, hey, if I buy this vineyard, would you teach me how to run a vineyard? He said, yeah, son. So these past five years with him, you know, he's 84, strong man, It's good, you know, Field work background. He's strong and healthy. You know, this is the best five years I spent with him. Quality time. Nice. He's teaching me, uh, you know, what to fertilize, how to fertilize, uh, when to water, and you know, he gets up on the tractor and he plows and mows and uh, all kinds of stuff that he does, w- helping me with the <laughs> with the vineyard. And 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 we sell all the grapes to a winery that makes. Uh, uh, champ- well sparkling wine can't call it champagne here in California Uh-oh. sparkling wine that's right and it's um, it, 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 it's Corbell so we sell it to them but then they make the mistake of one day inviting me to see their processes and I saw how they that make- engineered mind starts going to work <laughs> exactly I started looking at the process of how they make wine and you know my favorite phrase is hey, this ain't rocket science. <laughs> I can make this.
2: <laughs> I can make this. Probably more efficiently, too. <laughs> exactly, exactly.
1: And so so I started, you know, a couple years ago, started working with my own formulations and making my own wine. And finally, I settled on three concoctions that that we have. And, uh, and so I started my company. Again, everything under Tierra Luna. Remember, it's Tierra Luna Engineering. Remember my wife's restaurant, mm-hmm. it was called... Uh, Tierra, Tierra Luna, Luna Grill. Grill. Yeah. When we came to California and I opened up Tierra Luna Engineering, I handed a dollar to my wife She said, what's this for? I said, I'm buying your naming rights <laughs> of your now defunct restaurant because uh, you're over here. You closed it down. Here, here's, here's the dollar. I'm going to call it Tierra Luna Engineering. And then after that I opened uh, another company called Tierra Luna Sellers. That's with a C-C-E-L-L-A-R-S Sellers.com and then that 's where i I sell my wine now. Uh, this is the first year we came out with it it 's a direct to uh, consumer uh, and, and hopefully we'll end up being in stores and stuff later on when we up production but we're right now we 're sort of just getting it out there and getting it known and uh, and we have you know we have three varieties you know we have a Sauvignon Blanc which has my grapes, so if you want to drink wine from my vineyard. Uh, you'll see that the Sauvignon Blanc is the one to go. And then I buy grapes from uh, Lodi, uh, and I make a red Zinfandel, which is also good. And then I buy grapes from, uh, from the Napa area, and I make a red blend. That's a combination of, uh, of Merlot, uh, Tempranillo, Syrah, and Petit Syrah. So I call that the red blend. And then I named them after constellations because oh. the, the, the company is called Tierra Luna Cellars. But, like, the first one I ever made was with my grapes. So I call it uh, New Star, which is Nova Stella. Okay. Uh, and, uh, in, in Latin, Nova Stella. And then, uh, and then the uh, Zinfandel, I call it Stella Z, you know, Z constellation. Mm-hmm. And, then, uh, and then the uh, red blend, I call it Stella Roja. This is the red, red star, right? And so, uh, so, so, but, but, yeah, I, you know, it, it's, it's a great, uh, it's a great activity. I enjoy it. You know, it's kind of like another challenge that you know you start from nothing, and you create the labels, you create the formulation, and all of a sudden you got this nice bottle and say, you know, I'm the one that created this. This is so cool, <laughs> and so, so, so it, it's, it's, in enjoyable. I, I love doing this. I love doing this. Yeah, that's. Uh, Man, you're just getting warmed up, I guess. I guess so, yes, yes. And and then and then to top it off, you know, my son, my youngest son, I told you he was going to UC Merced, right? Um, he got accepted to University of Pacific, and he got accepted to UC Santa Barbara amongst other schools. But the three he liked was UC Santa Barbara, um, uh, University of Pacific, and UC Merced, And I was certain he was gonna pick Pacific or Santa Barbara, but he picks UC Merced. And I told him, why, son? I said, why did you pick, it's fine. I said, you go wherever you want, but I'm curious, why did you pick UC Merced? He said, well, these are the schools that are student-centric. In other words, they don't focus too much on research, but focus on the students' success. And so I liked all these three schools. I said, but why UC Merced? He said, well, the tipping point was in Pacific, uh, it says y- my brother and you are alumni. I said, "Yeah, that's true." I said, and at UC Santa Barbara, my sister and you are alumni. I said, "Yeah." So, <laughs> so you know, th- you, I'm going to always be known as you know the brother, or the yeah. sister, <laughs> or the son of. I said, I want to come and form my own, my, my, my you know create my own. Uh, route. And I said, "Well, I respect that." I said, "That's fine." So, the Friday, Saturday, we were supposed to move him in, right? Uh, and this was a few months back when the semester was starting. We were supposed to move him in. The storm and everything, and but the Friday before, one day before, I get a call from the governor's office, and says, uh, "You've been appointed as a UC regent." So now I am a UC regent. You know, overseeing the 10 UC campuses, uh, the national labs, Lawrence Livermore Lab is, falls under my purview wow. also. So, so, so we go the next day, Saturday. I thought nothing. I said, Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Yes, I accept and all that. So the following day, I go and, uh, with my son and my wife, and there we are moving him in. <laughs> and as we're moving him in, Along comes the chancellor, his assistant, the, the photographer. He's taking pictures with my son in the because I'm the new yeah. regent. you know. And, uh, and my son looks up. Well, he looks down on me because he's taller than me. He looks down on <laughs> me. He says, I'm never going to get rid of you, am I? I said, no, you're not. <laughs> so, so I'm also on the UC Board of Regents. So. Man. Impressive, man. Impressive.
0: Um, well, look. We're going on, I think, over three hours right now. Three
2: and a half. Yeah,
0: three
1: and a half hours. Oh wow, that time flies, doesn't it? It does indeed. Um, That's probably your typical interview, anyway, right? Yeah, yeah, Yeah. around three something. Between three or four. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Oh, good. I'm glad I had enough material (laughs) to to at least meet the (laughs) the norms here. You you met the minimum requirements. All right, (laughs) (laughs) I met the minimum requirements. It's just, it's,
0: it's a. fascinating story and it's just unbelievable to hear Kerry, you got any final questions
2: just an incredible story uh thanks you know thanks for sharing all the lessons from from your dad and from your story i mean it's just incredible man thank you
1: yeah oh the one thing miss young remember i told you not to let me forget oh yeah teacher I was just about to remind you. of that. Okay,
2: <laughs> don't worry. <laughs> All
1: right, <laughs> uh, yes, yeah, good, good, good. I'm glad. I'm glad you reminded <laughs> no, me. I'm, I'm just glad kidding. I forgot.
0: <laughs> I've dropped the ball. Yeah.
1: Uh, the, with Miss Young, you know, one of the things is um, when you go off on the mission, uh, you get to invite a hundred people. You know, in the VIP section. That's about you know about five six miles from the launch pad. So that's pretty close too. Um, And for a Hispanic family, it's like, okay, which of my cousins aren't coming? Right? (laughs) (laughs) We're so large, but 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 thank God I had Caucasian crewmates that didn't have quite a (laughs) hundred relatives, so I was able to siphon off. (laughs) Week. I was able to siphon off a a bunch of tickets, and so I had the school district look up Miss Young, and Miss Bale. Uh, now I couldn't look up Mr. Sendecas because he passed away in a car accident. Uh, but but I, I the three most important teachers and also uh, Mr. Rodriguez he also passed away of cancer. So two of two two of them were gone and um and, and so I looked them up and I had them invited and flown. Uh, and they were sitting next to my parents, both Miss Bayo and Miss Young. We're sitting next to my parents uh, witnessing in real life there the launch of the space shuttle and uh, and the impact that they had on me. You know, I thought that was kind of only right thing to do and try to get them out there and have that experience with us. Man. Outstanding. Outstanding. Well, um,
0: you know, again, thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, Thanks for sharing your story. Thanks for sharing your experiences. Thanks for sharing your lessons learned. You. Unbelievable lessons learned. And and thanks for what you've done for mankind to, you know, not only in the medical field and then in the final frontier of space. And then on top of that, what you're continuing to do right now with your foundations, yeah. um, trying to get out there and get kids pointed in the right direction. You know, we talked about. What happens when kids get pointed in the wrong direction? We know how that turns out. It's horrible. And to see someone like you that we're able to overcome those boundaries and overcome the ultimate boundaries and make it to where you've made it, um, just so much to learn. And I just want to say thanks for coming on and thanks for sharing. We appreciate it.
1: Well, thank you very much. And I noticed you have a Twitter too, right? And so I want to invite people to... uh, to to uh get into my Twitter which is uh, Astro underscore Jose so if you guys come and follow me and uh, and you're on Instagram as well uh, yeah, at,
0: that, at instro yeah. underscore Jose yeah. on Twitter at under, uh, astro underscore Jose yes. and then once again the foundation is astrojh.org yes and then Tierra Luna engineering. .com. Chira Luna Sellers. Yeah. That's where we can find you. Yep. We can we can either launch satellites
1: or we can have a glass of wine. <laughs> you got us covered. And if you drink enough wine, it's probably both. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Jose. Appreciate it. <laughs> thank you, Jago. It was great being here, and uh, thank you for the time and uh, and you were yeah you were very generous with your time, and I'm glad we were able to uh, go over my story, and I hope folks enjoy it. And like I said, if they want to get some more. Buy the book and, uh, and read it. Uh, I think it goes well with a glass of wine myself. <laughs> you got us covered. Thanks, Jose. All right, thank you. And with that, Jose
0: Hernandez has left the building. Man, very cool, st- unbelievable
2: story. Everything full circle with that guy. Yeah. Everything
0: <laughs> amazing, man. Just yeah. incredible story. Uh, obviously. He set a high bar on a long journey. I always come out of these things thinking to myself, well, I better raise the game. I better raise the bar. I better do a little bit better.
2: I think that's what we, I think that's what we all need to do.
0: K-Dog, what do you got? How can we raise the game? What do we need to do? What so, do you got for us?
2: So we're, we're raising the game on a strategic level and a tactical level, right? All times. Strategic Check this level, out. tactical Check level, this out. getting it right. Check this out. So I'm going to start tactical though, and that's Jocko fuel for me. RTD go in a can, need that hitter, <laughs> tactical solution, right? But it doesn't stop there. Yeah, it it serves the the greater goal too, right? The more strategic goal, which is staying on the path, staying healthy, not polluting my body with sugar and freaking. Chemicals. Chemicals, preservatives, additives. Right. So we're doing both here with the uh the Jocko Fuel or uh Jocko Go RTD cans. Check. Getting after K right? Dog,
0: right? Rock and roll. <laughs> you spent all night thinking of that, didn't you?
2: Nah, bro. Speak I, I just cracked this go about twenty minutes ago and it, it came to me when we were talking uh to to Jose, man.
3: Yeah.
2: You know, he was always he was always moving, making little tactical moves that were serving that greater vision. Um, and even, you know, even when it came to when he was talking about retiring, you know, that strategic vision was still, you know, taking care of the family. He had achieved that that highest goal. And now the the vision was to take care of his family, make sure they were good to go. Yep. It's rock and roll. Man. It's
0: thinking strategic at all time. And you're right. And I, I sort of talked about this with that idea of the of the deviation. Right and the acceptance of deviation and how one minute you're like, hey, you know what, it's just one donut and you just start to accept it, you start to accept it, you start to accept it. Don't accept it. Don't accept it. You gotta stay on the freaking path. You can't accept these deviations from the path. You gotta, get, and if you deviate, look, if you deviate, get back on it. So that's where we're at. Yeah, Get you know. get, get something that's good for you. You can drink something that's literally good for you. You don't have to drink something that's poison for your body, which seems cra- It seems crazy that in this day and age, we have to tell people, hey, you don't have to poison yourself. But people, the, the companies that make this stuff have figured out, oh, we can get people addicted to sugar. We got them addicted to the rush that they're going to get and that fake dopamine hit that they're going to get. And it's all lies. And it's literally bad for you. You might as well just go I just, just hit up the local freaking drug dealer and get some of that meth going. That's where you're at. That's what you're doing to your body. That's what you're doing to your mind. Don't do it. Instead, get
2: something that's literally good for you. Hundred percent. And and I've got I've got friends who who are addicted, addicted to energy drinks, and and thus addicted to everything that comes along with that energy drink. And it is, it can lead to catastrophic. Failure. Destructive. Right? We we don't want to do that. So Jocko Go R T D we also have Joint Warfare uh Super krill Oil uh Discipline Powder. We've also got the new pre workout. Mm-hmm. Got that in the sniper flavor. J
0: P and L just just straight. Just uh. just drew in the dry. What do they call it? Dry? dry Dry scooping. Dry he's dry scooping that. And now I've seen other people just dry scooping. Chasing it with a sour <laughs> apple sniper. It sour apple sniper. So legit. Getting it. Um so yeah, get get that stuff, the joint warfare, the super krill. That's how you're gonna, f- I had a SEAL buddy of mine call me the other day. He goes, hey, bro, I gotta ask you a question. And he's my age, I went through buds with this, as a matter of fact. And he he was like, uh, are you sore every day? Or is that, what's going on? I go, hey man, you got the, I go, you got joint warfare? He goes, yeah. I go, you got super krill? He goes, yeah. And I go, and you're sore? And he goes, yeah. And I go, well, quit complaining. <laughs> I go, there's, there's, that's as good as you're gonna get. Yeah. Like you're, I'd say, you're getting a little older. But you don't wanna go off that stuff. Mulk. You, or,
2: oh, gotta get that sure. mo if if you're still sore, bro. If that's that muscle soreness, yeah. the DOMS, yeah. <laughs> get on that mulk train. Get on the Where mulk you at, at. <laughs> 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 right? so uh, we, got, we got uh By vitamin. the way,
0: speaking of mulk, yeah, yeah. I just gotta mention this. Yeah. It's hot mulk season. Because it's wintertime. Even here in California. Look, even here in California, it gets a little look, it it's a little cold, a little cooler <laughs> in the morning time, right? So you gotta and this is the key point. Is you gotta warm the milk first. Don't put milk in milk and then warm it up. You gotta warm the milk, then put the milk in. I'll do an instructional video as we approach the. I've never done hot milk. Oh, bro! What? It's like hot chocolate, but it's good for you.
2: (laughs) So, yeah. Stand by for that that
0: instructional video. video. You're good to go. Yeah. Uh, Yep. So get yourself some milk, whatever flavors you want. Vitamin D three. There, you should hundred percent be on that for your life. Same thing with Cold War. Oh, oh, it's it's winter time. There's germs around. Cool, just crush them with Cold War.
2: We're fighting back on We're this fighting side. Back on this side yeah. all day long.
0: Uh, look, you can get this stuff at Vitamin Shop. You can get all of it at Vitamin Shop. You can get the drinks at Wawa. Go hit a Wawa. Just just clear the shelves. You can also get it from. JockoFuel.com, and if you subscribe to any of these things, which is a good call on multiple fronts. First of all, it's a good call on the health front because now you don't wake up sore and broken because you missed joint warfare. You don't go to bed with a with a craving in your stomach because you didn't have any mulch left. Don't let that happen. Just subscribe, and that's one front, health front. Other front is financial front. If you subscribe to something, we're paying the shipping, homes. We're here for you.
2: Get that free freight. Get
0: that free freight Let's going go. on. So there you go. Uh, another thing that we've got is, well we got Origin Maine, Origin USA, OriginUSA.com. We're making stuff. you see my post the other day? We're making stuff. We're making jeans, we're making boots, we're making geese for that jujitsu. We're making sweatshirts, hats, what, just what, what you need, what, that's what you, what, what you need. Rash guards, what you need, we're making it. We got a safety t- toe boot. Now we got work, heavy duty work pants. Just what you need, and it's all made in America.
2: And it's not just made. It, this is the thing. I'm I'm big on this right now. The the made in America mm-hmm. thing. Not not just made in America, but what Origin is doing right now in America, bringing manufacturing back to not just Maine now, but North Carolina too. Mm-hmm. Where where Origin is in North Carolina is 30 minutes from where I grew up. Shit. That's huge, man, yep. to know that down the road there are kids in my hometown right now that can go get a job at Origin. Are you freaking kidding me? I'm fired we're, up, we're man. I'm kidding you.
0: Not just made in the USA, originated. Because the material originated in America. The workers originated. This is American made, and it's how we're going to win the economic war, Absolutely. so there you go. Check it out, originusa.com, get some stuff. Get some stuff. Oh wait, it's Christmas time. Get some stuff for Ooh. Christmas. Hey, what if you could get a gift for your friend, family member, whatever, you could get them a gift and you could give America a gift of support. What if you made their future better because you bought something that was American made? I'm just saying, the option's there. You don't have to buy something from a communist. <laughs> you don't have to do that. You
2: can, you can, Look, you can, but you don't have to. Jack, Jack called me out in Austin. Straight up, saw my jeans. wasn't wearing. Oh, wasn't big. Yeah, what he was like. He was like, hey, you know, we got a company that makes those in America. I was like, oh, it, it burned me up, right? Oh, so that hurts. I, I got full benefit from that Black Friday deal at Origin. Tell you what, Jack. Delta 68's inbound.
0: <laughs> Jack, all right. So there you go. OriginUSA.com, Go get some.
2: Uh, we also have our own store, JockoStore.com. Uh, we've got the Discipline Equals Freedom shirts on there, Rash Guards T-shirts, uh, hats, beanies. Uh, it is officially hoodie season. Yeah, I think we like can I all said, agree. When you're going hot monk,
0: you're in uh, hoodie season 100%. <laughs> well,
2: hoodie season, squat season. That's what we're doing. Uh, we've got hoodies there. We've got women's gear. Uh, we've got uh, Warrior Kids soap made yeah. by Aiden out there getting after it. Irish Oaks Farms, um, Jocko soap. Out here staying clean. Uh, We've also got the shirt locker. uh, My brother Echo Charles making. my brother Echo Charles, the big dog. Oh is that the other guy that here yeah. sometimes <laughs> Echo Charles is making a new shirt every month and they are certified legit shirts. Uh, certified the, legit. We we dude. were just at the Jocko Live, saw you know, troopers out there with the Warpath <laughs> shirt on, with the Jocko riding the tank. I mean, just all of all of these awesome shirts. Get on the shirt locker again. Subscription situation there. Um so subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitch, or wherever you. Listening to, um, leave reviews, man. They are hilarious, and Jocko reads them, and they're awesome. Yeah, sometimes sometimes, sometimes. they're just cool, yeah.
0: you know, good. But sometimes they're funny. I haven't done a I haven't done a, a review in a while. I'm reading one of those. I need to get back on that train. Also, we have the Jocko Unraveling that I do with my friend Daryl Cooper DC. We have the Grounded podcast, which we haven't recorded in a long time. Is that thing dead? What are we doing? You know, we need to get it undead. Yeah, We sure. all are Indeed. doing Jiu-Jitsu. We talk about Jiu-Jitsu. I just need to hit record more Got a often. Jiu-Jitsu shirt? JockoStore.com? Yeah, yeah, we joco-store. got jiu-jitsu, Jiu-Jitsu T-shirts on JockoStore.com. So we'll get back to that grounded podcast. We have the Warrior Kid podcast for the warrior kids out there. We also have JockoUnderground.com. As you know, look, there's situations where we we have been banned in certain scenarios. We don't like that at all. I probably got banned today, possibly, because I told people to get off their phones and get get off, fight the algorithm. Fight the algorithm. How happy do you think the algorithm controllers are when they hear that? I bet you that thing gets beat down and freaking what, alarms is, going on. Monetized? Yeah, they have like freaking alerts going off in in brain control, mind control, brainwash central. They're like, hey, we got a rebel here. It's we need to put down. Back. Yeah, they're fighting fight against the algorithm. So look, we don't know what's going to happen. Mm. We we push against the algorithm hard enough, algorithms gonna push back, they'll push us right off. But guess what? We'll be okay. We'll be standing by at jockounderground dot com where we have we have a little oasis set up. It costs eight dollars and eighteen cents a month, but if you can't afford it, that's okay. Email assistance at jockounderground dot com. And and we do a podcast, we do a separate podcast on there, kind of like as a thank you. It's a thank you. Q&A, answer a bunch of Q&A, talk about some other subjects that are tangential to what we talk about on Jocko Podcast, but most important, it just is a contingency in case something goes haywire and we have to abandon the major platforms, it's okay, we'll be at jockounderground.com.
2: You can also find us on YouTube, um, Jocko Podcast YouTube channel. Subscribe there. Got some uh, great videos up of the podcast where you can see what Jocko and Echo and I and our guests look like.
0: K Dog put himself (laughs) in the mix. Hey, Hey, okay, so not bragging. So, look, when Echo, can you explain that when I talk about being the AD Mm -hmm. and kind of coming through at the critical moments? And and see so what Echo's done—the good tactical move. He's made it seem like that's funny, ha ha. He he was like he went with that to make it seem like yeah, Jocko's just kidding because he doesn't want he doesn't want to say <laughs> the truth, which is as you know at the critical junctures at the critical junctures there's usually a little bit of like you know that that little connective tissue, right? Mm-hmm, hey, look, Echo mm-hmm. brings he brings the major bulk of the. Of the muscle mass to the scenario, mm-hmm. but that Achilles tendon you gotta have <laughs> gotta get rid of. So the assistant director mm-hmm. myself, let's face it, sometimes I got to come in with the big win.
2: Uh, I'm you've seen it. I've I've seen it, but I will also say <laughs> I will also say that Echo Charles is open minded in yeah, these scenarios.
0: He, he's straight up. Luckily, he's humble enough. And he knows he doesn't push back when the when the when when Victor when the assistant director comes in <laughs> and makes a suggestion, Echo Charles is humble enough to say, "Yeah, Jocko's right again." <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh, open-minded, open-minded, yeah, open-minded for minded, sure. But you but we know. so we we've got those videos up on our YouTube channel. Origin also has an amazing. Uh, YouTube channel where they show you what it's like to bring manufacturing back to America. Uh, Check them out on YouTube as well. We've also got Psychological Warfare, uh, which is an album with tracks of Jocko helping you out of moments of weakness. Um, Highly recommended there. That's the fundamentals. You want to get reps in on the fundamentals? (laughs) Go hit Psychological Warfare up.
0: I owe another one of those albums, by the way. I know. know.
2: Totally. totally.
0: I got to prioritize and execute that. Uh, if you want something cool to hang on your wall, don't worry, Dakota Meyer's got you covered. Cool stuff to hang on your wall, which is all you need to say. Comes from Dakota Meyer, and it's cool stuff to hang on your wire wall. Check out FlipSideCanvas.com. Order something for yourself, Made in America, by the way, also. Got some books, Final Spin. Get, <laughs> I, I can't say too much about it, but let's let's face it, if you haven't read Final Spin, you want to you probably need to go get that go get that there you go there's your advice leadership strategy and tactics field manual the code the evaluation the protocols discipline equals freedom field manual weigh the warrior kid one two three and four that's what i'm trying to do kids are out there they need those books they need to be on the path they need to get steered straight unlike carlos and alberto and sergio that you heard about on this podcast today Get the kids on the path way the warrior kid one two three four there's Christmas there's a life-changing Christmas is that a bold statement no it's not actually life-changing Christmas get way of the warrior kid one two three and four for all the kids that you know make an investment every kid that you know get them all four of those books change their life get them on the path If you got little kids, get a Mikey and the Dragons. Best little kids books ever. Extreme Ownership, Dichotomy of Leadership that I wrote with my brother Leif Babin. Don't forget about About Face by Colonel David Hackworth. I wrote the forward on the new edition. We have a leadership consultancy. It's called Echelon Front. We solve problems through leadership, no matter what's going on. Leadership is the solution. Leadership is the solution. Go to echelonfront.com for details there. You can also come to one of our live events. We have the muster, we have field training exercises, we have EF Battlefield. We have the next muster is in Dallas, Texas, March 24th and 25th, if you wanna come and get some of that. We also have an online training program called Extreme Ownership Academy. Leadership is not something you just learn and you're good. It's not like that. It's something that you have to train in constantly. It's something that you have to work on constantly. It's something that you improve on all the time. It's a perishable skill, by the way. So that's why we created the Extreme Ownership Academy. Go to ExtremeOwnership.com. I'm on there three times a week, two times a week four times a week, answering questions. You want to talk to me? If you're like, oh, I'd really like to meet Jaco, just go
2: on there. That's that's the other thing about this leadership skill is that it helps to have a guiding, you know, a guiding hand, a mentor, you know, somebody who knows what they're talking about, helping you along the path. You guys do that three times a week. Uh, you and Leif, you know, on a uh, live event, uh, you know, JP, Dave, the, are the echelon front instructors guiding you through this stuff. I mean, it's a no-brainer.
0: Yep. That's it. Go to ExtremeOwnership.com. Come and hang out. Come and learn. And if you want to help service members active and retired, you want to help their families, gold star families, check out Mark Lee's mom, Mama Lee. She's got a charity organization doing all kinds of awesome stuff for veterans. If you want to donate or you want to get involved, go to org. And if you want, well... If you want more of my, um, what is it, marathon mumbling, (laughs) which is what I seem to do. If you want more of Carrie's inquisitive inquiries, well, then you can go on the interwebs on Twitter, on Instagram, and on Facebook. Carrie's at Carrie underscore Helton. I am at Jocko Willink. And also, don't forget that at Astro underscore Jose is where you can reach. Jose Hernandez, and also he has the Reaching for the Stars Foundation, AstroJH.org. So you can check that out as well. And then, as you, as you heard him say, he's got Tierra Luna and Tierra Luna Cellars. sellers.com Tierra Luna Engineering? Was it Engineering? Engineering, I believe. Engineering.com. If you want to get some help getting into space or you want to drink some wine, Jose's got you covered, which is awesome. And for all those men and women out there, right now in the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, thank you for keeping us safe here on Earth. And also, thanks to our police, law enforcement, firefighters, paramedics, EMTs, dispatchers, correctional officers, Border Patrol, Secret Service, and all first responders. Thanks for keeping us safe here at home. And to everyone else out there, Remember, remember Jose Hernandez, his family, give us an incredible example of what hard work and persistence, 12 years of persistence, by the way, persistence can do for us. And he gave us a simple plan to follow. Identify your goal, identify where you are in relation to that goal, map out a way to get there, educate yourself thoroughly around that goal. Put in the work. People don't want to hear about that step. Put in the work. Working at a cannery from 10 o'clock at night till 6 o'clock in the morning, then going to class at 9 in the morning. Getting two and a half hours of sleep when you get to home from school, going back to the cannery. That's putting in work. That's putting in work. And finally never give up. It's persistence persistence, 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 persistence. 12 rejection letters. I guess it was 11 rejection letters.
2: Got it on the 12th.
0: 11 rejection letters, 11 years of rejection. And what am I doing? What can I do? How can I get better? Where can I improve? And on top of all that, listen, it's the journey, it's the process, it's the track, it's the voyage that are the most important part. And if if you go on that path, Even if you don't make it to the end of the path, if you go on that path, look at how much further you are along in life. Look about how much better you have improved as a human being. So relish the struggle and even relish when you come up short, which you will. That's part of it. Keep reaching. Keep scratching. And no matter what, keep getting after it. And until next time, this is Kerry and Jocko. Out.